Welcome to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. Matthew, I have been chomping at the bit to dive back into our Dune coverage, and I'm excited for this episode. I'm excited for the chapters we're going to discuss. We got some physical action coming up here, buddy. But um, let's go ahead and give the good listener a reminder as to what page we are on in your version of the book, what chapter we're calling it, and then I will do the same. We can get everybody ready to roll, and then we're going to dive in. Yes, sir. So in my Penguin paperback copy, uh, we are starting today on page 133. Excellent. 133 and going all the way through page 204. Awesome. So now for me... I am on the uh, Neil Gaiman introduction hardcover. It's kind of an ugly uh, book, to be frank, but it is a hardcover, um, which is what I like about it because I can write in it a little easier. And I am on page 105 of my book, which we're calling Uh, chapter 12, right? Right. So why don't you you kick things off by diving into this uh, open as we're fond of doing, and then we will get into the minutia of the coverage that people are enjoying so far yeah all right the opening of our chapter on page 133 over the exit of the arakeen landing field crudely carved as though with a poor instrument there was an inscription that muadib was to repeat many times he saw it that first night on arrakis having been brought to the ducal command post to participate in his father's first full staff conference The words of the inscription were a plea to those leaving Arrakis, but they fell with dark import on the eyes of a boy who had just escaped a close brush with death. They said, O you who know what we suffer here, do not forget us in your prayers. From Manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Well, this is, um, this chapter was, so all of these chapters that we're going to be talking about, which is 12 through 16, uh, there's so much going on. There's, it's funny because I'm I'm sitting here highlighting and highlighting and highlighting Matthew, and then I go. It <laughs> yeah. might be easier to highlight what I'm not going to discuss. But um, <laughs> the beauty of what we're doing here is there's really no rules for us on the time limit. We're going to talk as long as we feel like talking, and uh, and I know we're going to talk a lot uh, about the goings on in these four chapters because we're sort of getting into more dialogue and more action and uh, with with. I found a little bit less sort of introspection. Did you find the same in these four chapters? Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of <clears throat> there's a lot of just figuring out and dealing with their circumstances. Uh, I mean, you know, in this first chapter that we're starting on, they're just we start to learn how dire their actual situation is as far as their equipment and the the men they have, the needs that they have to uh, to fulfill in order to even harvest spice. Like they're really, we realize how set behind they are from jump. Absolutely. And in some of the evolutions of, as we go through these next few chapters, one of the things I really liked about it outside of the introduction of kinds who I've always loved is that yeah. we, we, we get the experience of Paul's awareness of Paul's perception, uh, really being seen in practice here, which is something I found really fascinating, especially uh, against that of what we see from Leto. We also get a lot of great stuff out of Leto. No Jessica at all in these four chapters. 
uh, which was interesting, right? Right. She's really, time. really not much, not not really just spoken about versus we get any POV on her. And we get a lot of Leto. And I think we're overdue for Leto because Leto has sort of been lingering in the background of, of the novel as this man who, you know, for the father, nothing. And what does this mean? And, and Paul loves his dad. And what do we know about the man other than what people say about the man? But now we get to see the man in action. And, and to close out, when we close out this week, the coolest thing about this, Matt, is we're going to see kinds go from feeling one way about the man to another way about the man. So that's very interesting. And um, I love this first sentence. The whole theory of warfare is calculated risk. And he goes on to talk about how that gets a little muddled when you're dealing with people you care about. When it's family on the line, calculated risk gets a little bit more dicey than if you're dealing with people who are not, in fact, your family. And, uh, and I like how we open on this. And we have Leto pondering this idea and him knowing now that, you know, the last thing we went through is they tried to take of my, the life of my son. And now he's pondering this very thing. And the the subject of conversation in this chapter, Matt, is Hawat. And yes. uh, what's up with Hawat? Why why would he miss such a thing? He's getting old, the Duke considers. And and, and Paul comes to Hawat's rescue here. He does. He stands up for he's wise with much experience. How many of Hawat's mistakes can you even recall? Indeed. And uh, and I do like that. I do like that Alejo even recognizes I should be defending him, not you. You know, that's this is a, an interesting take on that first paragraph, which is this idea of calculated risk and family compromising that ideology. And what we're seeing here is um, a, a leader. He's, he's Paul's father, but he's also a leader of men. He is right. the Duke. And he's speaking to somebody in his court, which his son technically is, in a way that might you might consider unprofessional, like, oh, he's getting old and just sort of spotting off at the mouth. But he can do that. It's his son. But he, but he reels it back in when he realizes, as a leader and as an example to Paul, who, who may even be reminding him of the importance of his example, is I should be defending him, not you, right? I like that right. recognition in the man. Yeah, that his son, that he's almost like, you shouldn't even have to be judging this yet. There's a lot of, I do still feel like there's a lot of secret regret um, that Leto has. You know, we saw more of it in earlier chapters where he's talking about, this is already on my son. My son's already having to think about you know, the dangers to his life at such a young age. And I think he, he's scolding himself for being like, you shouldn't have to think about this thing. You, I, I, this, is, this is my concern, my responsibility. Absolutely. And, and, and a lot of this early Hawat stuff is, is going to be a factor very soon when we start discussing the suspicion upon Jessica. Makes sense why Jessica's not in this chapter and she's more spoken about directly by other characters because we know about Jessica. We understand Jessica's morality. We understand her ethics. We understand her loyalty to her son and to her Duke. So when she comes up as an item of suspicion, it's interesting that some of the seeds planted right here about Hawat are going to come back in just a few pages, which I think is actually very brilliant. And that's something this novel has been doing a lot. It's been it's been doing a good job of maintaining a consistent world and inconsistent POVs. And I think that's probably one of the strong points of the novel this far in. But you're right. Leto doesn't want Paul to have to 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 make these decisions, to to do any of this stuff that he is, this responsibility being thrust upon him. But he also knows that it's super important that Paul does because Paul needs to grow up and grow up fast. And we're going to see this sort of grim 
thought process that sort of plagues Leto is going to grow as these chapters commence, right? Right, right. Again, more of like, it's not, it, it's similar, I feel like, to Paul's feeling of terrible purpose. Sure. Um, but I feel like with with the Duke, it's a feeling of, of, of dangers closing in on them kind of no matter what they do, mm. even though he's, he's still trying to be as prepared for them as possible. Right. And, and, it, and it goes back to some of his strategic thinking earlier, which is this idea of, well, we know the trap. They don't know we know the trap. Let's not spoil that. So, so that right. is a thing that's very advanced thinking tactically, right? You know, you, you, in, in the only thing I can really liken it to is sport. Like, we're going to try to use deception here and we're going to try to trap somebody in a mistake. That's advanced thinking. And it's also anxiety producing <laughs> because you hope, you hope that you are skillful enough to be the two moves ahead of these people. It's just very risky as opposed to facing the problem head on. You're trying to be, you know, to, to use a, to, to dumb it down. You're just trying to be a little too cute. So you have to be careful when you're being a little too cute and using them. You see this in the NFL or whatever, like a trick play. Like, are you sure? Like it, you, you <laughs> could lose 50 yards or you might get a touchdown. So this advanced thinking from a strategic point of view, I find so interesting. And the reason I'm sort of harping on it is because I had imagined that a lot of the Duke's sort of morose point of view here comes from this anxiety of this idea of it closing in on him and knowing Yes, we know, but still, it's still close. No matter what, the bear is getting no closer, you know. yeah. right? Yes, we have <laughs> exactly. a pit trap for the tiger, but I hope he doesn't jump over it. I hope he doesn't go. <laughs> you know, it's that moment in Predator True. where you're like, he's going under the log with the spikes, and you're like, come on, kill me, I'm here. And you're like, please, 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 please come try under the right, way you know? I want you to. <laughs> right, exactly, because I don't got any options left. Um, and, and I'm assuming that that's probably uh, aiding, or not aiding, but sort of uh, contributing to the Duke's outlook but uh you know this is classic hawat uh, you know i mean we've known hawat for only 100 pages but it seems like classic hawat where he just says i'm going to tesner my resignation now i'm, I'm going right. to quit he's like just shut up and sit down the duke just don't is make like, a fool of yourself exactly <laughs> you're acting a fool knock it off <laughs> because he does actually trust his men he does trust thufir i like i like that he harbors no grudge about you know thufir's potential mistake not you know finding the um the the assassin device when he did but he's he's ready to move past that like we he really is. start to see in these chapters the ones that we're talking about today how much duke leto cares about his men and he kind of puts that front and center like that seems to be his like leadership philosophy is to be concerned with the well-being of of the people who serve him that that comes first um and that could even i, I can imagine that that could play into his mistakes as well that he's sure. maybe somewhat too trusting sometimes but you you see why he's admired by the men and by thufir and gurney because of how he treats them he he does give them the benefit of the doubt he knows who his real friends are and he doesn't harbor any grudges absolutely and uh and, and it's also pointed out how what had trained Paul and had he not trained him so well, Paul would be dead. Right. So right. that's a consideration. The, the hunter killer or, or what is it? I, I'm saying hunter killer. Hunter seeker, Thank you. Hunter killer's terminator. <laughs> hunter seeker <laughs> is Dune. Uh, the hunter seeker could have easily slain Paul had it not been for the training that Paul received from Hawat. So that's also a thing. And, and even though Hawat, you know, they, they make this point about him, him, he's going to punish himself more than we ever could anyway. Right, right. Hawat, Hawat's, Hawat's somebody who takes his responsibilities quite seriously, and he is old, and he is 
under lots of stress. I mean, we are moving to uh, Arrakis. We are going right into the lion's den. They're all feeling this sort of anxiety that Leto is feeling, and for good reason, because they have a blood feud with the goddamn Harkonnen who are vacating or who have vacated the premises and left all kinds of, uh, I suppose we'll see, behind <laughs> to be annoying. <laughs> right. But we, we, we get to, we get, we get a lot of, uh, like, we get staff meeting stuff here. You know, uh, Halleck, Halleck rolls in and he says, you know, call, we, we get the men called in and uh, we see staff officers, uh, all, all sort of serious and grim, uh, a bit of eagerness about them, and uh, they all sort of roll in. They're a good crew. A man could do far worse for this kind of war, uh, Leto thinks, which is awesome. And he basically starts off by saying, well, gentlemen, our civilization appears to have fallen so deeply into the habit of invasion that we cannot even obey a simple order of the Imperium without the old ways cropping up. Which, of course, oh, he opens this meeting with a bit of a, getting a bit of a chuckle from the people because they know that this is quite true, right? Right, right. And I, I was actually slightly confused by that. Do you think he's referring to, like, Canley there? That, like, no matter where they go, they are still in sort of like a... A royal feud? Is that I, I think so, yeah. I think yeah. when he says the old ways, he's referring to it, we deeply fall into the habit of invasion that we cannot obey a simple order without the old ways cropping up, meaning he knows that even simple things are going to be muddied up because of this age-old conflict, the old ways, as it were. Right, right. It is always going to return to conflict. Yes. That makes sense. And one of the most important things going on here is this discussion of the Fremen, right? And, um, and Hawat says, listen, first things first, he talks about some economic matters. There's, there's a lot here I want to get to because it's very plot driven, which is, I can say now that the Fremen appear more and more to be allies we need. They're waiting now to see if they can trust us, but they appear to be dealing openly. They've sent us gifts, still suits of their own manufacture, maps of desert areas, uh, and, 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 uh, strong points that the Harkonnen left behind. And these are very uh, reliable intelligence reports we know uh, because they've, uh, they've been proved completely reliable because of the judge of the change. And uh, there's jewelry and liquor and candy, and they've, they've sent all kinds of stuff. And, um, you know— There appears to be no trickery. There appears to be no trickery, and they're, and they're discussing, you know, what do you think of these people? They, like, they ask Hawat. I believe Leto asks Hawat at the table, what do you think of these people— to which Hawat says, look, Idaho thinks they're to be admired. And we know that Idaho has spent a lot of time amongst them. That's why he, he was only referred to in the beginning of the novel, because he was out with them making inroads with the Fremen, with the locals. Right, right, because he was sent out ahead of time before they ever even came to the planet. That's right. Uh, and this is where we get some logistical information about the Fremen, where they have cave complex, uh, a cave complex visited that could suggest 10,000 people uh, all told, all seem to have their own allegiances to someone called Liet. So that's a new name that has come up. The allegiance of these Fremen come to somebody named Liet, which is brand new, brand new information that Leto himself didn't know. Right. And they even think that they have some information that they say it could suggest Liet may be a local deity. That's how highly regarded he is. Indeed. Yep. And, and as you know, we're, we're also interested in the smugglers, right? The smugglers are some men that they want to try to retain, which is what they talk about here. Uh, there's unlicensed frigates working off planet. It's always been done. And, um, you know, but to have them completely outside our observation isn't something that they're too crazy about here, right? 
And that's when the Duke right. says, hey, I have an idea here. So we got the Fremen, we got these smugglers. Head a delegation, contact these, he calls the smugglers, and I love this, quote, romantic businessmen, close quote. <laughs> and he says, look, we're going to look the other way. They're, they can continue to operate, but I want a ducal tithe. I want to be cut in on the action. So he's basically like saying, hey, I'm Tony Soprano, and you, I want you to make your money, but you better kick upstairs. I don't care. <laughs> do what you're going to do, exactly. but you got to kick upstairs to me. And of course, Gurney has this idea where he says, but, but what about the emperor? Like he's going to know. And he goes, great. We're going to make it public. We're going to make it open and we're going to give it all to Shaddam the fourth. Yep. Make it legal. It's brilliant because he already knows that Shaddam the fourth has it out for him. Right. Right. So <laughs> by now doing, by giving him a rackets at all, by giving him a rackets at all. So now what he's doing is he's, he's taxing these smugglers to look the other way. And he's making that money publicly known that it's going to Shaddam, which of course is going to piss off the Harkonnen because the Harkonnen have, uh, you know, they got a little bit of their own shit hiding around out here. So all of a sudden, Shaddam IV is not going to get an influx of money from smuggling operations that are being taxed, which is going to piss off the Harkonnen, right? Because then Shaddam's going to know, why didn't the fucking Harkonnen do this? Exactly. (laughs) Right? It's like, wait a minute, I'm getting this extra tithe now? That could have always been happening? So wait, 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 wait. The the Harkonnen's had this for 80 years or something? I don't remember the time they had it, but... I think it was, yeah. But but at this point, uh, the, the, the emperor must be beside himself when he starts getting this you know this uh this little kick up or kick back (laughs) i guess is a better way to say it and of course (laughs) this gets a lot of laughs around the table this is a low blow and they like this because you know the the harkonnens took 10 billion solaris out of here every 330 standard days and um it's just uh you know they were shortchanging the emperor so to speak Right. And now that's just, it's it's such a nice, sly, subtle way to expose Harkonnen bullshit, even, you know, even towards the emperor. Absolutely. Which he knows they're in cahoots with, but maybe soiling that a little bit is something that is beneficial to Leto in this instance. Not to mention maybe other houses might look upon Harkonnen and go, wow, you look a fool now, don't you? <laughs> you gotta. There, there is a lot of reputation damaging that needs to be done in these in these battles between the two. Yes. It's like they, they're really trying to take down each other's esteem in front of you know the 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 Landshrad and the, the Emperor. That seems to be almost like it's almost like a cold war in that sense right now. Like things haven't heated up all the way yet, but they're finding ways to undermine one another one another's appearance. Indeed, indeed, and to destabilize them which is important. Right. And a little assassination here and there. But, but like you said, that we're trying to destabilize each other, maybe, maybe even through damaging their prestige. Exactly. But of course, the question comes up, do you guys really think the Harkonnen just up and left? I mean... Yes, I love that quote. <laughs> do you think they quietly packed up and walked away from all of this merely because the emperor ordered it? Right. I mean, this oh. is the Harkonnen we're dealing with here. <laughs> They're sneaky fucks. You guys know this. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, they start talking about equipment, and this is the first time we start hearing about some of the logistics of what they have, right? Uh, sand crawlers, harvesters, spice factories, you know, what has been left behind? And uh, we learn that everything the Harkonnen has left is basically falling apart, right? right. This makes Total sense. disrepair. They probably knew, okay, we're going, there's going to be a change here, a change in command, a change in leadership on the planet. So let's just let things fall into disarray, S- especially since we're sitting on we are sitting on the Harkonnens are saying, we're sitting on spice overflow. We don't care. 
Let Atreides exactly. struggle. This goes back to damaging reputation, as you said. Right, right. Let them struggle. Let them look bad and inefficient and not produce as much as we were producing, you know, and that will only help the Harkonnen cause. Yes. Um, some other things come up. They're talking about carryalls, harvest factories. You know, this is a very, this is going to be a very um, production heavy world. And a production heavy world requires lots of equipment, lots of big equipment. This whole operation in Arrakis is going to be trying to mine spice, which is a very difficult operation that requires lots of equipment. And that's what they're talking about mostly here is that very equipment, carryalls, et cetera. And we learn a very important point here, Matthew, where Halleck says, wouldn't it be cheaper to reopen negotiations with the Guild for permission to orbit a frigate as a weather satellite? You know, because the idea of, a, you know, being able to track weather comes up. And the Duke says, uh, well... <laughs> You know, the guild's not really negotiating with us right now. He was merely making it plain, one man to one man tat to another, that the price was going to be out of our reach and would remain so no matter how long a reach we develop. Mm. And our task will, is to find out why before we approach him again. Right. Of that to me, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but that <laughs> seems like it's tied in with the uh, the imperial of plot course. and the Harkonnen tree because. You got to imagine if they're they're essentially saying we wouldn't do that for you no matter how much money you have or influence. Right. It certainly seems that way, doesn't it? Seems not good. It seems that the guild, which we know is the all powerful, because of the way they control shipping, the way they control space travel. I mean, they have a monopoly on space travel. That's been known since the first mm-hmm. few pages, and apparently they don't want to offer any type of equipment to House Atreides at this juncture, and they don't know why. But we can all suspect why, right? Right, right. The men that cry they... about justice, and the Duke says, listen, let me give you this <laughs> great line. But let us not rail about justice as long as we have arms and the freedom to use them. Do any of the rest of you harbor bitterness? If so, let it out. This is a friendly council where any man may speak his mind. And, uh, this, you know, this is good this stuff is... here. Yeah, and of course, it's after one of actually uh, Gurney Halleck's aides, you know, like you said, snaps about there's no justice in this. Like, why are we being so pushed aside? Why are we being so condemned from, you know, it seems like from all fronts. It's like, it seems like the emperor's conspiring against them. The land shred and the Harkonnens are conspiring against them. And now even the guild in some way. Um, and yeah, I like the Duke, Duke's point of view of basically like, yeah, there's nothing we can do about who's already against us. Like, how do mm-hmm. we react? How do we pivot? And, and, and he continues by suggesting, and I love this, and he says, this, this is one of my favorite lines of the chapter, they don't, they don't know yet who's going to win this exchange, right? He's telling the men this. He goes, listen, they don't know who's going to win. Most of the houses have grown fat by taking few risks. One can't blame them for this, only despise them. <laughs> this is great. I mean, this is a very grounded and nuanced view of something he doesn't just jump to oh this is unjust and let's cry about it because what's that going to do matt at the end of the day he it does nothing for them to cry about the injustice of it all he can say is think about it from their perspective for a second there's this age-old conflict between two houses over the most important planet in the fucking imperium why would anyone risk their neck right now when they are comfortable with their families they're gonna wait they're gonna hold their cards they're going to see what happens, and then, and then they're going to decide what they're going to do, right? Right. 
like not enough has even happened openly Absolutely. for anybody to really be taking sides yet. Like they, they under, you know, the, the Atreides understand what's happening to them and what the situation is because they're having it happen to them and they're having to yes, deal with it. Exactly. Like everybody else, they don't even know what's going on yet. Right. They have no clue. They, they probably have hear rumblings. They probably hear things, but they're not in a position to make, it's ludicrous to assume any move made here would, would make any sense whatsoever. Right. Even though the guild probably doesn't concern itself too much with the emperor's power because of their monopoly on, on travel, on production, on, on, right. ec- on the economy. But they, why, and they have such why, a unique monopoly. Yeah, there's yeah. no one else that can can do it. The houses can exchange. You know, one house can be a charge in charge of Arrakis, and then a different house can be put in charge of it. Like those things can shift and change. Right. The Spacing Guild. Th- there's no one who can take over their monopoly. That it's singular. Absolutely. And to be perfectly clear, just to give perspective to uh, to the listener, remember the the House Atreides would never have gone from Caladan to Arrakis without the Spacing Guild. Period. Right. Right. The Highliners brought them there. There's no way to navigate the vast distances between the worlds. And they wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for the Spacing Guild. And that is what they do. They're not going to then say, oh, yeah, let's, let's get you some weather satellites. Let's get you some other things. No. They're doing what, they're, they're, they're doing what makes sense. Now, now, to be clear, the Spacing Guild's interest in the, in the, in the, uh, in the uh, spice is clear. They need it to navigate, Right. So, of course, they probably would prefer Atreides being there, but to tip the scales any further is a bit premature. Right, right. They're still playing it safe as well, because why, why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't they? Um, and and they, 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 seem, they probably seem like less politically ambitious than, say, the houses themselves. The guild is going to exist regardless of what houses are doing what to each other. So Exactly, yeah. Play fair. And we don't know much about the guild. They're very much shrouded in secrecy. They might have a covenant that says, we don't involve ourselves in these conflicts, which would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I would, if I were them. For sure. <laughs> so the worms come up, Matthew. They talk about worms and how big are these worms. And Hawat says, there are worms in the deep desert that could take this entire factory in one gulp. Yeah. Holy shit. Because, and we also get a, an understanding of just how large these harvester factories are. That the ornithopters that you know they ride in with four or five men at a time, they're like gnats to this thing. Nothing. They are, they, yeah, these, nothing. These harvest factories are gigantic. They literally are a full fledged factory that can move. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, then we find out here that yes, the, there are worms who can swallow those whole. Yep. Uh, so they they start talking about you know according to Idaho's report, shields are dangerous in the desert. This is uh, Hawat speaking. A body size shield will call every a body size shield. To be clear, we just talked about scale. We talked about the size of this thing. Matt mentioned the, the, the factory. One gulp. Okay. Hawat makes it clear. A body size shield will call every worm for hundreds of meters. It appears to drive them to a killing frenzy. Right? Right, right. Super dangerous. Brings all the danger. And this Fuck. is, the Fremen have given their word that this is the truth. And Ida says, Ida says look, and there's no evidence of shield equipment in any of the sieches. Sieche is basically just what the Fremen call their, their strongholds. No right. shields. The Fremen do not engage in shield technology, which is going to become a point of conversation coming up here. The idea of shields. We're going to learn a lot about shields coming up. We've seen the shields in training between Gurney and Paul. Uh, slow on attack, fast on defense. What does it mean? Nothing can penetrate a shield. Very interesting technology in, in how important it is to the Imperium and, and how it is, 
it, it would be like saying, okay, uh, go around the room to the to the Marine fire team and collect their M4s. They can't be used. Like, what the fuck? What are you talking about? <laughs> now what do we do? Yeah. What, what are we doing? This is crazy. So try to imagine the importance of the shield to members of the Imperium and then the complete abandonment of them by the Fremen is a very interesting topic that comes up. Obviously, if it drives the worms into a killing frenzy, that really matters. Yeah. Yeah. Because that is the main obstacle, as we learned, especially in the next couple chapters, the main obstacle to spice harvesting is the worms because yes. it's, not a, it's not a thing that like, oh, they're out there and sometimes they appear and sometimes they fuck things up. They always appear. Yeah. That's, Every time. Kind of says it, that, right? Later. Right. It's right, not that we, if, we, it's when. Exactly. Like you are, you are literally always prepared to flee from a worm because they are always going to come to spice factories. Indeed. But this, but this shield talk is very puzzling to the Duke. He's not, not a fan of this. This is again, imagine the necessity you've come to your whole culture. The whole way you train to fight is around this particular defensive uh, technology. And now to say, well, wait a minute, can the Fremen nullify it? Or, or, or I mean, what lots of questions come up about the shields and right, they don't right. like these unanswered questions of importance, right? The Leto, Leto says as much. I don't like not knowing. And, uh, and I want this to become a top priority for us. That's, that's something that Leto puts Thufir on, right? He says, I need to right. know. And uh, Hawat, of course, is already working on it because that's how Hawat is. And then right. they, they kind of move off the topic of shields and they start talking about, again, to give us more scale, they're looking at the... So, so imagine they're all sitting around this big table Listener, everyone's sitting around this big table and they're discussing logistics, strategies, tactics. There's a lot of this stuff going on here. This is that cool moment in the movie where the staff is assembled around the table and they're discussing, you know, what are these things going on? We're acclimating to our new place. We're talking about the Fremen. We're talking about Sietches. We're talking about shields. We're talking about what we have, what the Harkonnen have, what they know, what they don't know. All of this stuff is going on right now. And they start talking about carryalls, right? This carryall is this massive thing that swoops in and it picks up the factory when sandworm sign happens, which is really cool. So you go out there, try, try to uh, try to let's 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 give us let's make a, a comparison. It would be like if you had a uh, an operation you could only do while in scuba gear, and you're all swimming and you're all working on this thing, and a shark is going to come. We don't know when, we just know it's going to come. And then when the shark approaches, we get sign of it. We send a helicopter out. You guys climb up. We fly away with whatever we did. That's it. Like right. That's ex- essentially what they're doing, except the scale is massive. It's this giant worm in the desert. It's this massive operation. So imagine a carryall, this giant flying device that scoops up this factory and takes off to ensure that they can get spice. Now, this is a technology they've honed over years and years and years. As we know, the spice has been around a long time. And the Harkonnens did it this way. The Atreides are going to do it this way. Whoever was before the Harkonnens did it this way, and so on and so forth. So this is the way the operation goes. We mine the spice. We wait for worm sign. We got spotters. When they spot the worms, we send in the carryall. We pick that fucker up. We get home, and we start the process of, of, of uh, probably uh, mining the refining spice. Or, refining. Yeah. That's the word. Refining. That's the word. <laughs> yep. Right. We also learn pretty soon here that no matter what they do, at least with the equipment that they have that has been left by the Harkonnens, they're going to be operating at a pretty high loss for the yes. first while. Even, yeah, I think it's uh, Howitt who says, we'll be lucky to make it at 30% at first with reinvestment and growth factors accounted for, including the Chome percentage and military costs. Our profit margin will be reduced to a very narrow 6 or 7% until we can replace worn out equipment. So this is kind of what we were talking about a little bit earlier, that 
no matter what they do right now, even if they you know, dive onto spice production as fast as they can, they're going to be producing far less than the Harkonnens were. Indeed. And that is certainly part of the, the Harkonnen plans. And, and it, that's, that's, that's sucky because all the houses suffer, right? Especially right. any of the ones that were getting fat off of spice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they, they talk more about the shields, the carols, and, and, and the Duke is still bummed about this, what he calls de-emphasis on shields. He doesn't like this. This is, again, this is, try to understand this from his point of view. This is, a, uh, your, your entire military strategy is centered on the idea of shields on the person, shields on, you know, the structures, ships. the ships, and everything. Right, right. Uh, yeah, you all have to change. Yeah, we'll be looking to make 30%, you said, right. And what were they going to do? Their profit margin is going to be like 6 or 7%. That's garbage. Right. <laughs> They're trying to get it up to 15%, which is you know more reasonable uh, and would fulfill probably their obligations. But they're not going to be able to do that. And this, I also thought it was interesting how when we start to learn more about how they're going to be so far behind, uh, the Duke says, there it is, exactly as we expected, uh, how far their profits are going to be down. We'll have to move fast with the Fremen. I'd like five full battalions mm. of Fremen troops before the first Chome audit. So in his mind, it seems like there might be a bit of a timeline that the Chome audit is something to be afraid of because the strike is going to happen then or near then. Because doesn't it seem as if, you know, we've talked about this the whole time. The Atreides has, has been sent here to fail, okay? And right. then once the Chome audit comes and goes, it sort of gives Emperor Shaddam the fourth the ability to say, "Well, it has to come to this." You know, right? It's, it, right. You, you know, it, it would be like saying, "Okay, I'm going to remove your arms and legs and throw you in the water, and then when you fail a swimming test, we're going to have to execute you. <laughs> we're going to have to execute you." Sorry, it's he's right. just making it legal. That's what's happening here. So, and they know, and he, he I love how Leto has the gall just to say, "Yeah, I mean, they're going to have Sardaukar disguised as Harkonnen." So. We need Fremen to sort of counteract this effect. This is, I, I find this very interesting because this is more discussed behind the scenes, but just this idea that they're even going to get the Fremen. This is, seems to be a big assumption for me, but I guess the, uh, Idaho's report suggests, well, we've made inroads here. I think, I think we're going to be good. And um, what I like about these chapters coming up here, Matt, is the idea that a lot of this is going to fall in Leto's example, especially towards Kinds as to how the Fremen are going to view the Atreides, because they really need native support <laughs> when, when, when the shit hits the fan. Right, right. Because they know they're going to be wildly outnumbered. And just with the nature of Arrakis being the planet it is, they know that they don't know the landscape and the environment as well as Fremen. Like, I, what strikes me is that I feel like they obviously understand that the Fremen have a potential to be strong soldiers, like um, Duke Leto was talking about in our last episode. But I also think they realize that they almost need them as like experts uh, of the planet. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, they're in a very foreign environment here. Um, I like the idea where, um, <laughs> uh, who says it here? The five battalions of Fremen ought to do it. Let us have a few captive Sardukar to parade in front of the Landsherad, right? I like the yeah. idea of suggesting exposing this treachery to the Landsherad, which, if you don't remember, is the big council that's representative of all, of all the houses, right? Which could put a lot of undue pressure on the emperor, right? The emperor is the most powerful guy, you'd say, in the Imperium, but he probably serves at the behest of the Landshrad through some sort of voting measure, I would imagine. Right. And you've got to imagine, too, that the only force that could oppose the emperor, like, truly equally is if all of the houses of the Landshrad were united. Indeed. Um, so that's got to be something he's worried about. Like, yeah, the emperor is, is the, uh, the utmost power, and he's above all of them, 
But if they unite, that's probably nearer an equal force. Indeed. Going back to your earlier point, this is a great line by the Duke where he says, we're presently in a war of assassins, but it has not achieved full scale. Thufir, what's the condition of the Harkonnen machine here? And I love this. How it says, we've eliminated 259 of their key people. No more than three Harkonnen cells remain, perhaps 100 people in all. Dude. Wow. That, you're like, so imagine what, what, what we don't know is, as Matt said, this Cold War, it's sort of raging. I mean, you could probably write books on just these assassinations, just these, just these operations that are going on behind the scenes that the novel hasn't really dove into. It's just kind of mentioning it here. Uh, right. They also get into um, these Harkonnen creatures being eliminated. eliminated were they property? Meaning, did they have property? And the Duke gets very duplicitous here. He says, I want to forge yeah. certificates of allegiance, file copies with the judge of change, will take the legal position that they stayed under false allegiance, confiscate property, take everything, and turn out their families. Strip them, he says. Leto getting nasty. Yeah. Make sure the crown gets its 10%. It must be entirely legal. Uh, yeah. that's it's some pretty backstabby in Paul's not there, a fan, but, right? Paul Paul right. doesn't feel good about this. Um, he understands, you know, there's no holds barred in Canley, but he's not a fan. He's not a fan of all this. No, because it strikes him as as devious. And he even notices there uh, when when Halleck kind of speaks up with one of his little you know poetic quotes. He's, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Paul mm. stared at him, recognizing the quotation from the OC Bible. Wondering, does Gurney too wish an end to devious plots? <laughs> Indeed. So it, stri- it does strike Paul sideways. He doesn't like to hear his father kind of stooping lower. Right. It's, a, it's also a very valuable lesson for Paul to get this perspective at this point in his development, right? To kind of see the underside of what it's like to be at war. It's ugly. Yeah. It's very ugly. Yeah. Nasty. Now, if we recall, Herney was, Gurney was trying to, Herney, Gurney was trying to get 300 men. He ended up with 286 of them. And he says, consider that good. Consider us lucky. Duke's not, doesn't love that, but 286 is 286, right? Yeah. <laughs> the best we're going to get. <laughs> so we finally get to meet Duncan here, Matthew. Let's Duncan describe Idaho. Duncan. Uh, Paul studied Idaho, marking the feline movements, the swiftness of reflex that made him such a difficult weapons teacher to emulate. Idaho's dark, round face turned toward Paul, the cave sitter eyes giving no hint of recognition, but Paul recognized the mask of serenity over excitement. Pretty cool. Yeah. And this Good is keeping it cool. And this is Idaho saying, guess what, dudes? We just smoked some Harkonnen Mercs disguised as Fremen. Ooh, <laughs> treacherous Harkonnen. So Idaho and his party ended up icing some Harkonnen Mercs. And uh, right. the Fremen actually tipped the Idaho off, like, hey, these aren't us. They're dressed like us. They're not us. Right, right. And we find out very quickly that what they found on the Harkonnen couriers was a Chris knife. Mm, yes. We, we've learned about that through the shit out Mabes, that that is a, a Fremen uh, ex- Fremen exclusive. You death know, you got to sign up for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the old death maker. You got to get the pre, you know, you got to get the pre-order to get that knife. It's an absolute Fremen exclusive. But it's no, invitation it, it, only, right? Exactly. Um, but they don't really know the meaning of it yet. They no. simply know that it is a Fremen knife um, and that it's an important thing. And that's what the, the Harkonian, you know, agents were trying to smuggle off of the planet. Right. And even actually as they were dying, <laughs> were trying to throw it away so that the, the Atreides didn't know what they were trying to smuggle. Pretty wild. 
And then they're like showing it off and saying, check this out. And uh, some words ring out in the hall. Keep that blade in its sheath. And that's Ooh. where we meet a tall robed figure. A light, uh, uh, in, stood in the door, barred by the cross swords of the guard. That's cool. A light tan robe completely enveloped the man except for a gap in the hood and black veil that exposed eyes of total blue. This is where we get a chance to meet Stilgar, chief of the Sietch. This is like yes. this is like Magua. <laughs> yes. He ain't That's happy about it. any of this, right? <laughs> uh, and why shouldn't we unsheath this blade, Leto asks. Stilgar mm-hmm. glances. You observe the customs of cleanliness and honor among us. I would permit you to see the blade of the man you befriended. Right. But he doesn't know these others. Would you have them defile an honorable weapon? Because I, like we already know as Indeed. readers that you cannot take that out of its blade or out of its sheath and show anyone without either that person being cleansed through some sort of frim and ritual or killed <laughs> or fucking killed. <laughs> cleansed one way or the other, right, Matt? So exactly. I, I like how the Duke is like, well, I'm Duke Leto. Can I see it? He's like, I'll permit you to earn the right to unsheath it. And boy, does this go up <laughs> gurney and everyone else asses sideways because they don't like this kind of talk. What do you mean earn the right? This is Duke Leto Atreides. Like, I love this culture clash here. This is interesting. I like how Stilgar says, you can earn. I don't care what you call yourself, dude. I'm not a man of the Imperium. I don't care. I'm making right. all that. This is all me <laughs> paraphrasing, but this is the attitude, right? Hey, I don't care who you are. I don't care what hawk crest you wear. I don't care about your colors. I don't care about your flags. This is, no, you can earn the right to that. Of course, these guys, knowing Duke Leto's importance in the Imperium and to them and, and how honorable he's been to these guys, take exception to this. And this causes right. some tension in the meeting now that we have a Fremen rolling in to give his perspective on some things. <laughs> and yeah, Stilgar sticks by his guns. He says that of the Chris knife, they are ours. They may never leave Arrakis without our consent. Yes. Which has got to be, you, you got to imagine that's part of why they probably did tip off the Atreides. Not just because Absolutely. they're trying to make inroads with them, but they, they don't want their knives leaving the fucking planet. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And the Fremen, they don't know about the Atreides yet. They know about Duncan, right? So imagine right. the Fremen's point of view here. The Fremen are here. There's the judge of change, Pardo Kynes, who we're going to learn about, who's very tight with the Fremen. And they're finding about this swap of power. I'm sure they have some some of their own rules about how they're going to handle this. And they're like, man, these Harkonnen are scum. Let's let the Atreides know. But we don't quite trust them yet either. We don't trust, you know, right. it's, here comes the new boss, same as the old boss type of shit. We don't know about these guys yet either. It's, you know, I would imagine like these, a lot of these factions in the Middle East are like, well, administration change. What's that mean now? Right. What, what, <laughs> right. What's next? I don't know. Who's our enemy today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who's our enemy today? Who's our friend yesterday or, or vice versa? And I like this. I like how Leto has, is so wise though. He said, he thinks this can't get out of hand because this is getting tense now. Right, right. And he just says, listen, I honor and respect the personal dignity of any man who respects my dignity. And I like that. I like how Leto doesn't just kowtow. He says, yeah. I respect you if you respect me, period. There's no other way about this. Like, Leto's a leader of men. Even though he's dealing with a, uh, a foreign culture to him, they're the local culture, really. But, but he is not going to, like, he's not going to say, yeah, absolutely. Oh, we're so sorry. No. He says, we honor each other or this doesn't work. And that strength right. is something that Stilgar and the Fremen seem to really respond to. That honesty. 
Right. And it, it's also because it strikes me as like, I have, you know, I don't understand the customs of the way you express honor, but I will respect them. Like basically mm-hmm. almost saying like, I am willing to learn how to respect you in your own culture. Right. Like, I don't know it yet, but I am willing to learn that and, and behave honorably with you. And assuming you do the same with me and, and, exactly. and understand that I have a different, maybe, maybe I have a different code that represents my honor. And this openness is great. You know, he says, I pay my debts. If that's the custom, then that's the custom, period. To which prompts Stilgar to quite openly remove his mask, reveal a black bearded face, and he hawks a giant spit on the table, which of course causes swords and guns and everything else to come out. Idaho, hold! Hold! (laughs) Don't everybody start killing each other, hold! Please don't last gun this man in half. We need these people. (laughs) <laughs> and uh of course we know the preciousness of water and why this matters so much and uh and and we sort of we we die down this dies down they spit on the table right measured yeah, well idaho is, thank god for idaho in the room yes, he knows that yes exactly. that is a gesture of respect among the fremen because i love mm-hmm. it. it's a perfect little clash of culture where the same action uh done in front of you know two different types of people two different cultures to one, it's a total fucking insult, and to the other, it's an absolute, like, almost bow of respect. Right. I mean, you you survive on a thimble of day. That's at least a thimble he just spit on the table. Right. And uh, what one of the things we learn is, like, when these, uh, when, when these, when, when um, excuse me, when the Atreides men intercepted these Harkonnen disguised as Fremen, in that party of Atreides were some Fremen. And Stilgar really was impressed with Duncan because one of the Fremen was killed in the process, correct? And he says, right, you right. fight well and you did your best for our friend, right? Yes. Let it be thus. The man Idaho keeps the Chris knife he holds is a mark of his allegiance to us. He must be cleansed, of course, and the rights observed, but this can be done. He will be Fremen and soldier of the Atreides. There is precedent for this. Liet serves two masters. So again, the name Liet comes up. But what we're learning here is that Leto, they want they want Idaho. Okay, cool, but we want Idaho too. So apparently Stilgar, what Stilgar is suggesting here is that Idaho we'll is- We'll share it. We'll share Idaho. <laughs> so Idaho is becoming a popular man between the two <laughs> factions. And we don't know him too much at all, which, which as a reader, we go, this is intriguing. This is intriguing. Right. And I do find it interesting that the way that, you know, essentially, we don't know the full size of the Fremen yet. We, we know that one CH is up to 10,000 people, and who knows how many CHs there are. But that the, the thread that is tying these two, you know, factions together, the House of Trades and then all of the Fremen, is literally one guy. Like, that, that's how it has mm-hmm. to start right now. Like, they have the relationship of one guy between the two of them. So, Idaho got, like... We barely get to meet him, you know, so far. Like, we only have this one short scene with him here. But he is arguably one of the most important people in the book right now. Like, you don't see – we don't keep up with him a lot. We're not seeing his point of view very much yet. But he is certainly the bridge connecting them to the Fremen. And he's – he's you know, he saves their relationship in this scene by being yes. the one who understands that it's a gesture of respect when, when Stilgar spits and gets everybody else to see that. Right. And I like the way when the novel opens, Idaho is not there. It makes sense. 
right? He's busy. It, He's it's, busy it's, in the sand with Fremen. It, it's sort of like saying, okay, here are the colonials, and like they've made they've made an alliance with this particular American Indian tribe, and and this guy is there, and he's learning the customs, and they're sh- they're sharing customs, and like, well, we have a mutual enemy in the British or whoever, the French, whatever the fuck, and um, and that's it. Like, we're going to this is what we're going to do. Like, we're we're going to help each other in this instance, and uh, it's it's interesting how what what we learn here, and we'll we'll kind of buzz through this a little bit, but. Basically, what we learn is, you know, we need five battalions of the people. We know that that's already true. But they start talking about this Chris knife and how the Harkonnen had a reward, a million Solaris, sounds like a lot, for this Chris knife. And they started thinking, God, this is crazy. Why, 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 why? And then we learn, yeah. aha, because if you have a Chris knife, you, it's, people go, it's a mark of the Fremen. People would just yeah. let you do anything. You can walk in, it's, you can do whatever you yep. want. It's, it's, a, it's, and they're like, God, what, why, what are they going to do with this? And that's when Piter de Vries comes up, who we already know is very cunning, very clever, a man of devilish cunning, my Lord. And they think, aha, Piter de Vries probably put this idea in the Baron's head or had this idea. If we can get a Chris knife, we can get into these sieches and so fucking discontent. Yeah. Any blue-eyed man could penetrate any siege in the land. Right. And, and that would he be, is a mintat with blue eyes. Yes. Peter de Rees is is, uh, is 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 all is all crazy on the spice. So Peter de Vries, if he had a Chris knife, would be mistaken for a Fremen very easily, which would give him access. Right. <laughs> Guard that knife, the Duke says to Idaho. <laughs> of course. Guard that knife. <laughs> so that's when um, we know that the idea of these bases come up, right? Uh, it's said among right, the Fremen yeah. that there were more than 200 of these advanced bases on Arrakis during the Desert Botanical Testing Station period. All now that, of, that must be an imperial order, right? Like yes. the Imperium built these, these Correct. advanced bases. Yep. Um, uh, and that's when they say all have been abandoned, but there are reports that they were sealed off. And the Duke's like, ooh, juicy, yummy equipment in those bases. <laughs> That's not been completely you know, eroded by sand and blasted apart by sandworms. And just left to die by Harkonnen treachery, right? Just leave the right. equipment to rust and rot and fall apart and fall into disrepair. And um, that's when like, ooh, where are these? And they say, well, this Liet probably knows. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm trying to remember, that, but they also believe they're concerned about the legality of going into those bases, correct? Correct. Because they're not Atreides property. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cause they are technically the imperial, the, well, the emperor's property, I guess you would say. Yes. Which leads us to this, this judge of change, Leto said the imperial ecologist kinds, wouldn't he know where these bases are now before we continue, it's important to remember the judge of change, Leto kinds is somebody who works directly for the emperor reports to the emperor. He's here to oversee the swapping of power between Atreides and Harkonnen. He's very close to the Fremen. He's what's called a planetologist. He, being an Imperium man who works for the Imperial uh, Imperium, is somebody who would know about these bases logically, right? Right. Yeah. So he would have access to them. But so it's like they they have to go through him if that's even possible. If it's because possible, I, and even if he knows, they're not even a hundred percent. And I like how Leto just says. And he's a long way from the emperor. And he's right. So so he's almost saying, this guy's been with the Fremen for a while. He's a long way from home. 
maybe we can, uh, maybe, maybe we, there's wiggle room. Maybe <laughs> there's wiggle room. Maybe we can get into these bases and see what, how that goes. And uh, right. that's when Hawat sort of exclaims, Sire, those bases are so legally his majesty's fief. So that's Shaddam's property, to be clear, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And the Duke says, well, weather can destroy anything. <laughs> In other words, we break into the bases, we steal the equipment and say the weather destroyed it. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I like it. I like this Leto character. <laughs> he doesn't give a shit. He's like, you're going to set me up to fail. I'm going to rob you of equipment I need to succeed. So that said, <laughs> let's get kinds on, let's get this kinds and, and, and see what's going on. And, and even Hawat's like, this is dangerous what we're talking about here. I mean, this is, uh, ooh, ooh, I don't know about this. <laughs> right. Because I mean, one thing I found interesting too is that Paul being sitting in on all of this and noting it, he says it ended up in confusion, this meeting. Like the meeting has really kind of been more contentious than they realize. You know, Stilgar shows up and riles up everyone. Now they're concerned about a, no, a new possible plot with the, the Harkonnens trying to obtain a Chris knife and, yes. and penetrate the Fremen. Yes. And now, you know, uh, the Duke Leto is on board with trying to essentially get his hands on these bases and this equipment, no matter what the legality of it really is. And it's a bit of an argument, a bit of a disagreement between him and, and Thufir. And and Paul notes that this meeting had just seemed to trickle out, worn down by its own inadequacies and with an argument to top it off. Indeed. For the first time, Paul allowed himself to think about the real possibility of defeat, not thinking about it out of fear or because of warnings such as that of the old reverend mother, but facing up to it because of his own assessment of the situation. Yeesh. Paul is growing up. Yeesh. That's grim. That's grim for the boy to realize in this moment. They also right. are concerned about Hawat being very troubled. And we're going to get to that, right? Paul stared at the place where his father had stood. The space had been empty even before the Duke left the room. And he recalled the old woman's warning for the father. Nothing. Father headlong into doom. Headlong into doom on Dune. Yeah, not (laughs) good, man. Not good. All right. So what page are you now on for chapter 13? I am on page 158. And I am on page 124. And uh, I will read this. Let me sip my tea before I read this, Matthew, because I swear when you're doing a novel, it feels much more like a tea sipping experience than drinking beer or whiskey. (laughs) It's true. It's a much more refined style of podcast for us. We're reading books and whatnot. We are reading books by the fire. Very high brow for LSG. (laughs) (laughs) So chapter 13, page 124 in my book. What about yours, Matthew? Page 158. Awesome. On that first day, when Muad'Dib rode through the streets of Arakeen with his family, some of the people along the way recalled the legends and the prophecy, and they ventured to shout, Mahdi! But their shout was more a question than a statement, for as yet they could only hope he was the one foretold as the Lisan al-Gaib, the voice from the outer world. Their attention was focused, too, on the mother, because they had heard she was a Bene Gesserit. And it was obvious to them that she was like the other, Lisan al-Gaib, from the Manu of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Ooh, Matthew. Yeah, dude, honestly, one question I have before we go past this, and I'm not sure how, how much you know about this either, but that last line, it was obvious to them that she was like the other Lisan al-Gaib, is that... Indica- is that pointing towards a prior Bene Gesserit who was there? Like they're saying she's like the other Bene Gesserits that they have seen and they call them Lisan al-Gaib? 
Or is that still another term for um, for what they think Paul might be? Well, right above that, Lisan al Gaib Matthew is referred to as the voice from the outer world. Right, right. So perhaps, uh, perhaps in terms of uh, the cycle, there has been things before, others yeah. before, right? Well, because we know they only have these particular beliefs and prophecy with these <laughs> particular titles because of Bene Gesserit Amen, uh, machinations. Amen. So I'm, I'm almost imagining that there was a prior Lisan Al-Gaib, a voice from the outer world, who was the one spreading the word about these prophecies. Yes, yes. All through the Missionaria Protectiva. Very clever. Good shit. Good shit. So this is where a chapter where uh, Leto and Hawat are going to have a discussion. And yes. uh, and I like this, you know. I like that they get into some. Uh, they, they they it starts with pleasantries, right? You can tell this chapter is done very well because these men are talking logistics. They're talking about storehouses and how they're susceptible to destruction, and how uh, you know uh, the Baron can object if something is destroyed, which he can openly miss. So they're talking about destroying Harkonnen uh, storehouses, which the Baron could never claim happened because he's not supposed to have them. Right, So they're talking, this is very clever. They're like, well, we know he has stock somewhere hidden, maybe on Gidi Prime. Maybe if we fuck him up and we destroy him, he can't say, Emperor, they destroyed my storehouses of what? Spice? No, can't say that. So they, <laughs> have, say that. So they have a funny feeling. As we know, Leto already knows that people are stockpiling. And those are the people to look out for because they knew ahead of time that there could be a disruption. So they were in on it. And, well, we know for certain the Baron Harkonnen is in on it, and they're thinking, thinking about ways that they can strike out at him. But this really is, it's not, it's not small talk to be discarded. It is, in, it is important logistics, important planning for this conflict to come, or, or conflict, as you pointed out, that has already sort of started. Mm-hmm. And exactly. Leto says, you've been holding something back, old friend. I should have suspected when you were so nervous during staff. What is it that is too hot to dump in front of the full conference? And, uh, oh boy, I like Hawat thinking here. This is how I like him best. This is the man of honor who deserves every bit of my loyalty and service. Why must I hurt him? Wasn't it not that long ago, Matthew, where, uh, uh, not Kynes, but um, uh, 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 UA was thinking the same thing, right? These same kind of thoughts being betrayed by what he's going to do or say. But at least we know... Hawat is just sort of suspecting Jessica, which of course is a big deal. This is a big deal what he's about to drop on on Leto. Right, right. That they recovered a a, a note, another Harkonnen agent they they discovered, and I think I think they said killed as well. Mm-hmm. But they discovered on him a note that was also in the process of destroying itself that they were able to cease, even though they couldn't save the entirety of the note. But Hawat says it says. Ato will never suspect, and when the blow falls on him from a beloved hand, its source alone should be enough to destroy him. Mm. The note was under the Baron's own seal, and I've authenticated the seal. A, sc- a scrap of note, my lord, to be sure. Incomplete, <laughs> right? He, yeah, it's like, he says it, but then he instantly feels bad about saying it. So, because Leto keeps going, what note? Tell me more about this note. What about this note? He's like, scrap of note, a fragment of note, a piece of note. So just a single line. It's nothing, really. <laughs> like he's, it's almost like this regret uh, to, to continuously correct him on how much actual intelligence they have. Right, right. That not wanting to make him feel too bad, but also feeling obligated to at least bring it up. Mm. 
Leto, of course, is infuriated by this, and he wonders why they couldn't have gotten more information from this Pardee, to which he says, well, he died. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and Hawat's not confident he knew the importance of what he carried. <laughs> right, that he was just a courier. Mm. So a lot of the back and forth on this is, uh, you know, you investigated the school, meaning Benny Gesserit, you investigated the woman, the woman, and Hawat's like, you know, things have been known to escape me. And this line is very important because it goes back to the chapter before where he was doubting himself. And I find it very interesting that his own, that Hawat's own self-doubt is leading to him thinking that possibly Jessica is in fact a traitor. His own self-doubt. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That, that if he feels since that he's, he's missed things that maybe he's missed a larger, more obvious thing because his, his nose has been too, you know, downcast. Indeed. Indeed. And he says, and of course, Leto brings up everything that you would bring up at this point when you're challenging the plot, right? Regal, while she's had ample opportunity, she could have poisoned him, she could have killed him, she could have done a million things to undermine him a million different times. Right, and, and he even brings up the obvious, you know, could a woman conspire against her own son? Because they know that the Harkonnens want to destroy the entire Atreides mm. line. So he's saying that that's ridiculous. Why would she conspire against her own son, who he knows that she loves? The Harkonnens mean to destroy you, my lord. Their intent is not just to kill. There's a range of fine distinction in Kenley. This could be a work of art among Vendetta. To which the Duke physically slumps over from. I mean, (laughs) this idea is brutal. When when he's like, you know, just just me suspecting her can can destroy us. I mean, why why go further? And that's when Hawat's pressing him on this. He says, listen... Do you understand what they're trying to do here? And that's when he really drives it home. And even the Duke's like, it cannot be. Like, he starts to think. There's no way. There's no way. What better way to destroy me than to sow suspicion of the woman I love? Of course. And that's when Hawat says, of course, I consider this, but still. Right. right? I love that. that He's basically seeing the two branches, the two different possibilities. That, yes, it could be a sham. That this could be essentially a false flag just to sow suspicion uh, of Jessica to distract them and and get get everybody disrupted and, and, uh, you know, not seeing the other signs. But at the same time, they still can't ignore the possibility that she could be a traitor. They have Mm. to keep both in mind. And I love how this gets down to, and I find this utterly fascinating based on, on, on Leto. And I want to, I'm really curious to what you think about this, but just this idea, Matt, that, (laughs) <laughs> they go, Leto's like, okay, Hawat, what do we do? And she, he's like, well, constant surveillance, of course. We're going to survey her. We're going to pay attention to her. And, uh, and, and he's like, so I'll, I'll jump right on that. And I love Leto's forethought here. He goes, not you. I need you with this Fremen thing. This Fremen thing is so important. Now, part of that could be doubt that there's something up with Jessica, but I do like that. What do you think about Leto saying, like, if Leto really wanted to know, you'd think he'd want, of anyone, Hawat on the case. But he's like, no, 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 no. So what, <laughs> I was curious as to what you thought about that. I, that's really interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that is Leto keeping in mind that the larger threat, the the oncoming, you know, it, there might be all these different little uh, tidbits and, and, and possible false flags that could distract them. But the the higher priority is keeping their alignment with the Fremen good and trying to keep keep that contact open and keep it so that they can possibly enlist them as real help, as real troops. And that's such a bigger priority, even to the possibility of an internal traitor, because especially they might your find, concubine. 
Right, right. But even if they find an internal traitor, well, how do they protect themselves from the the larger advance from the Hoke Har- Harkonnens, which they know is eventually coming? Like, mm-hmm. I like that he keeps that at the forefront of like, okay, I'm worried about this on a personal level, but for the good of everyone, we need to make sure we have the best reinforcements possible, which are the Fremen. So focus on that relationship. Indeed, keep yeah. That, Don't keep that on the front. Absolutely, that's a great assessment. I also like the idea of Leto. You know, we've, we, this, this almost gets into sort of thematically what we have in Dune, which is this idea of, well, if Jessica is a traitor, we now have her, she's now exposed to us. It's almost like, well, we know we're walking into a trap, at least we know. So if it is in fact Jessica, he'll be able to regard her a certain way going forward and avoid falling into any trap she may set for him as far as he's concerned. The fact that she's even in, the fact that it's come up means that you can now be cautious, Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Then we get, uh, my lord, before you go, I have a film clip you should read. It's a first Uh, approximation analysis on the Fremen religion. And this is when, I I, I think for the first time, Leto hears about uh, the the religion there, that they have a prophecy, that a leader will come to them, child of a Bene Gesserit, to lead them to true freedom. It follows the familiar Messiah pattern. Uh, And and Leto asks, they think, Paul is this? They only hope, my lord. What this is a the first time. bomb! What a bomb for Leto. Right? Did I mean, think-, think of the information. Think of the think of the severity of information coming to Leto in the last you know twenty pages. <laughs> right. It's, your wife could be a traitor that's also trying to kill your son and eventually you and also your son could be the godlike prophecy figure that they've been waiting for for centuries. Your wife's a traitor and your son is Jesus Christ born. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, uh, all this other crap, logistics and military stuff. And I do like that the novel decides to sort of inject these multivaried sort of um, conflicts right in here to, to, to really send him spinning. It shows just how good of a leader he is, does, doesn't it, right? This ability to navigate all of this stuff. Right. It, it's definitely exhausting him. Like, this whole chapter, <laughs> yeah. I feel like he's, like, hump, hump, you know, slumping lower and lower and taking deeper sighs and just like, ugh. Fuck, so much going on. <laughs> Why? But he does balance it well. Heavy is the crown, right? Yes, indeed. So, and I mean, oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the chapter kind of ends with, I, I think what's interesting is that the Duke is stepping outside and watching, you know, the landscape, watching the moon and trying, like I, I interpreted it as him trying to find the good. <laughs> like he's looking out, you know, l- you know, looking at how he has to make his final stand here. But at the same time, he's watching, you know, the, the night growing, the scenery, and also just trying to imagine that maybe this could still be a good place. Maybe they can make a life here, the outside of all the conflict that's on them at this moment, that possibly there could be good things here. But it still ends with him watching the people uh, harvesting dew from the flowers because they're harvesting every last bit of water that can be captured. And he thinks, and it still could be a hideous place. <laughs> There's just no escaping it. Yeah, I like that a lot. There's a lot of good in that last kind of page. Just a lot of the 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 beauty and tragedy of Arrakis sort of swirling through his mind. A lot of his thoughts about this idea of I must rule with eye and claw as the hawk among lesser birds. Right now he's like, it's time to start opening up on these guys a little bit. And I like that. Right. I like how he has this idea of the beauty here in and could it could you know could this be a place could this be a place or or is it a hideous place this back and forth idea of arrakis right so right. much baggage on it totally yeah it's beautiful oh, i love it 
So that's a, a bit of a shorter chapter, uh, but it is one that drives home a very huge piece of information. It's funny, the whole, the, the, the big thrust of this chapter to me was thinking about this idea of Jessica being a traitor, not even considering, you know, Mahdi in uh, Paul and, and in what in fact is he and, and now Leto having to grapple with this information. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it, it is in this chapter the one we're coming on to now, yeah. yeah, where 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 you can tell the Duke has been thinking more about Paul's position in this and what he could what he could do with that uh, being seen as the prophesied figure. Absolutely. And why don't we jump into that and uh, let's give a uh, let's give some reference points in your book and I'll do the same. All right. On my book, uh, we are on now page one sixty six, one thirty in mine, and of course we're both in chapter fourteen. And I believe it's your turn to read the uh, open. Yes, sir. There is probably no more terrible instant of enlightenment than the one in which you discover your father is a man with human flesh. From Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Boy, true words have never been spoken about any adult right. in your life, right? Yeah, true. And I, and I feel like that that's kind of one of the, the background themes of this entire book so far is Paul, you know, Paul both growing up and, and you know, finding his own confidence, starting to realize his own purpose and what he can do, what actions he can take, but also learning that his father is simply a man. And, Mm. you know, he's a duke, he's powerful, he commands a lot of presence, but at the same time, he is a a man with flesh and weaknesses and, you know, his own, you know, I I think we especially saw that in the prior chapter where he was talking about seeing his father so devious, uh, which he'd never seen his father making such devious kind of backhanded plans before, but he realizing that that's the things his father has to deal with. Indeed. Paul starts off in this chapter by considering, and I'd like you to sort of, listener, maybe you too, Matt, consider this. You're watching a film clip, and, and we're hearing things referring to you, Mahdi, Lisan al Gaib. Paul thinks, what is it they hope? Right. Imagine they you're hope 16. Imagine you're 16, and suddenly... You're watching film clips of people referring to you in quite religious fervor as Mahdi, Lisan al-Gaib. What does it mean, right? The old Reverend Mother had asked, Kwisach Haderach, right? That was the word. Right, right. And to top it all off, what makes it so complicated is the strange world with sensation of familiarity, he thinks, right? The problem, the problem he's facing is the sense of familiarity. That's what's so difficult about what the boy faces. That's what's so challenging. It's not just they're saying it, it's I feel it as well. And what I find interesting about that, I'm curious about your your point of view on this. I kind of took, because, you know, okay, the Reverend Mother tells him about the possibility that he could be the Kwisatz Haderach. Yes. Um, now, that is a term from the Reverend Mother, a Bene Gesserit uh, prophecy. A Bene Gesserit term, yes. Right, that's their own, that's like, the, that's like the, the Bene Gesserit's own internal prophecy that they actually believe in or think that they're working toward. Um, and the fact that yes. he also compares that with being called Mahdi and Lisan Al-Gabe from the Fremen, kind of, he's almost conflating the terms. Like, there actually are, the Kwisatz Haderach is not the Mahdi because the Mahdi is something that the Fremen believe in Kwisatz Haderach is something the Bene Gesserit believe in. But since he has had that feeling of terrible purpose and wonders if that's the Kwisatz Haderach, he's kind of tied that together with the perception of the Fremen people seeing him as a possible Mahdi. But I think that's a conflation. I I would agree. I also think part of it we have to remember as well, Matt, is that he has the ability to see into the past's 
correct? So there could right. be echoes here that, that are perception beyond that which we can comprehend. This sort of sickening familiarity, a sensation of familiarity, could be the conflation, but it could also be the echoes of the past uh, sort of reaching him uh, from a very faint place from once, once long ago. But yes, you know, what, what the Reverend Mother, mother told him is, as far as he and her are concerned, is quite real. What the Fremen believe, of course, is manufactured, but perhaps based on real stuff as well, right? That seems to be probably the most clever way to operate. Mm-hmm. That in right, this particular right. case, they're working on uh, this real Bene Gesserit prophecy, but also, very importantly, this one that involves the Fremen and what they've made them come to believe. Yeah. It's almost like yeah. the two are intermingling, but the conflation would make sense from Paul's point of view. But I would, I would also ask, I wonder if some of that has to do with sort of the echoes of this idea of seeing into both feminine and masculine pasts. Remember that? That was one of the early things yeah. that Mohayim had said. That, that's what the Kwisatz Haderach can do that's Indeed. unique to them. Yeah. Indeed. And, and, and as he develops, maybe the echoes of time are sort of in his sort of perception in the moment, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It's, uh, there's a lot going on here, but this is where, uh, you know, slowly, speaking in a slow voice, Ganana's anger, the Duke explained to Paul about the mysterious note. Because at this point, Leto comes out and he tells Paul the suspicions of his mom. Yes, and I, I love Paul's immediate reaction. You might just as well as mistrust me. <laughs> right, it's great. It's like, great. It's so good. It's so confident. Um, but the Duke then replies, they have to think they've succeeded. Once again, that. once again. Having to kind of play into the Harkonnen intrigue and, and lean into it and allow them to think that the Atreides have been duped. Indeed, indeed. And uh, there's a lot of self-doubt in this chapter from Leto, despite that 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 smart tactical decision, which is he's feeling it now, right? Leto's really feeling it now. And we get that in this chapter. We get him, you know, you lead well, Paul protests. You govern well, men follow. And he says, my propaganda core is one of the finest. So Duke Leto's, he's a sad boy. Yeah, he's starting, right. I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of self-doubt here, a lot of self-doubt because he's feeling, you know, the tightening grip here as, as we get into this. Right. And I like what he even says before that as well, where he says, I, nothing wins more loyalty for a leader than an heir of bravura. I mm. therefore cultivate an heir of bravura. And then he immediately goes on after, you know, Paul saying, well, the men follow you willingly and love you. Like he said, he says, my propaganda corps is one of the finest. Mm. He's basically saying, yeah, that's a little bit of propaganda though. Like I'm a leader. I do what I think is right. I, I try to lead my men, but at the same time, I still need propaganda for people to see me as a, as a big and powerful leader. Like it has to be a message that is constantly told. Um, so I think he, there's a part of him doubting himself there of like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of partly, my image is partly propped up by my propaganda core. Like yeah. he doesn't feel as full as, 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 as he's perceived to be. The, the, the people must learn how well I govern them. That's huge. I mean, that is politics 101. Right. The, the only thing, even in the modern day, Matthew, the only thing you know about what politicians may or may not do is what they decide to have covered by the media. Right. right. Exactly. And, and that's the only perception people seem to have when they are, quote, informed. And, uh, and I love that we see this sort of playing out in a book written in the 60s, which is just like, the people must learn how well I govern them. How would they know if we didn't tell them? What a profound <laughs> statement. Right. They wouldn't right. know. And why would they know? 
You know, it's a little bit different in the Arrakis world, and we're not going to get political here, but just that idea is very fascinating to me. How would they know if we didn't tell them? How would we know if we didn't have the media just sort of telling people <laughs> this? Aren't right. we great? Look what we did today. We did this. Because that's, oh, that's well, the well, only we love way. You. <laughs> right? Right. And that's the only way their their leadership is present in everyday people's lives. Because Indeed. otherwise, like, um, certainly they make decisions that do affect the daily workings occasionally. Sure. But a lot of the time they're working Especially on their own. <laughs> right, right. But a lot of the time they're working on their own, you know, machinations. and They have their own reasons, you know, to be doing what they're doing. I mean, a.k.a. all of what they're doing to kind of counteract the Harkonnen plots. Exactly. That doesn't affect regular people. That's not anything that matters to them. They don't know or even, you know, they shouldn't know really because this is to be kept secret. So anything that the government of the Atreides is doing for the people on the planet, it has to be constantly announced, constantly mm-hmm. talked about to, to, to create a, a perception of them at all. It's such a brilliant statement. How would they know if we didn't tell them? I mean, that's that's excellent. That speaks to me deeply. Yeah. And uh, and I love I, I love Leto just you know, and I know we're bouncing around here, but just the idea of him. I, I believe he said earlier he felt morally tired. That is such a fascinating thing to say, and it's so profound yet again. This idea that what he's had to do. I believe he's. I believe he just says this idea of. I'm morally tired, which is quickly followed up with him talking about, you know, we spices and everything. Arrakis gives people some uh, immunity to some of the poisons around here uh, and things of that nature, because he then says Arrakis makes us moral and ethical. So when he says I'm morally tired, I don't know if we should confuse that with he's tired of making dubious choices, devious choices. Maybe he's suggesting, you know, this idea that we have to do it in other ways is tiring. It's almost like saying you can't use poison because people are kind of immune to it. And we have that great line, Arrakis makes us moral and ethical. Interesting, right? There's a, yeah. there's a truth in the brutality of the world in and of itself outside of the machinations of man, right? Right. And that forces well, truth upon you, I think. And well, and it also forces honest combat like you they can't rely on on sneaky poisons they have to go be upfront and ethical in their battle of canley (laughs) it's interesting yeah because of course we all know what will eventually happen is they will learn how to also skirt the edge of that as much as possible to anything to get an advantage right yeah yeah there's no uh, honor in death i guess (laughs) well i guess it depends on who you ask but uh, i do like that i like i like how Paul has this moment where, you know, he, he's watching his father consider, you know, on Caladan we rule with sea and air power. We must scrabble for desert power and what's to become of, of, of you. I mean, he's thinking of this stuff out loud. So I, I, what I find fascinating about Leto thinking out loud of this stuff is this is scary for a son to hear. It's scary yeah. to hear your father and the leader of your house to be so morose, which means he trusts Paul and he thinks Paul's strong enough in that maybe Paul is disarming without, without later even realizing it. Yes, it's his son, but also plenty of fathers would keep this from sons, especially fathers that are leaders. They wouldn't just sort of be shooting off at the mouth about how morose and we're going to become a renegade house and guerrilla warfare. And, and Paul's like, Jesus, I've never seen him like this before. Maybe part of that is Paul's disarming presence and his father just sort of blathers this, not really thinking. I like that. I like, I like that. Leto's guard comes down around Paul. I find that such an interesting point in their relationship. And doesn't he even say, I, I'm trying to find the spot, but I, I feel like he says, maybe it's not until the next chapter, but where he even kind of almost fantasizes. No, it is in this one. There it is. I found it. Um, 
Yet sometimes I think it would have been better if we'd run for it, gone <laughs> renegade. Sometimes exactly. I wish I could sink back into anonymity among the people, become less exposed to. And Paul's like, father, like he's, <laughs> he's shocked at hearing that from him. Um, and, you know, we kind of talked about that passage already, but I, I like that of like, he, like, I think that goes to your point that this is not what the Duke would say to anyone else. Like he's, mm. he is kind of opening up to his son, probably even involuntarily of Indeed. just like, you're, you're a person I can say this to you. You're, you're my son. You love me. Um, and I can, I can say this out loud for once. And I'll tell you, this is a real perspective shift for Leto, just to, for us, the reader, this idea that. I think I think Leto has always had this feeling, and, and we covered this last time, but this idea of, I'm not getting out of this conflict, but I'm going to set my son up and, and House Atreides will endure. Now we're hearing, gee, I don't know. Maybe we'll teach you guerrilla fighting. Maybe we'll teach you, right? He starts to go, well, what a, what a perspective shift for him. We're feeling the weight of this really pulling him down. And it's funny that it's coming right after, right after, the suspicion of Jessica, right? This is a, that's soul crushing your loved one betraying you. And that, and that's, even though he's shouting and he, and, and he was shouting at Hawad and getting angry, part of him probably believes it, which is the ultimate tragedy to me. And he's gone from, well, I'm probably not going to make it. And we're going to set Paul up. It's going to be great. Super. Not, not great, but I wonder how Paul <laughs> will fare here. Now it's like, maybe we'll teach you guerrilla fighting. Maybe we're going to become renegades. Maybe that banner flapping out there is going to come to mean evil things. And, uh, and yeah. I love this. And, and, and he says, listen, Mahdi, Lisan Al-Gaib, please capitalize on that if necessary. Keep that close. You might yes. need that, right? He's, he's, this, is, this is like a tailspin for Leto. Yes, but I, I do, I really like that line of his where he's saying, as a last resort, you might capitalize on that. And it's the first time, like I was saying at the top of this, where, you know, he's, you know, Leto has now understood that Paul at least, perception-wise, fits into this prophecy, prophecy among the Fremen. And he sees that as a possible tactical, you know, useful tactic. Totally. Of like, keep that, use that if need be, which implies that we could still absolutely be defeated. Um, and that might be your last, you know, card. So so keep it close. Um, and I love that line that the honorable banner could come to mean many evil things. Mm. And that kind of comes back to his, you know, feeling of being morally tired. That to, to maintain constant honor, that you that you could put yourself in a more dangerous position, and they may have to react instead with a little more dishonorable, you know, positions to take that make them look worse. But it's a matter of survival. Amen. And I'm glad you brought this up because doesn't this sort of start pointing the fingers at the one eventuality that seems to be gripping House Atreides? And that is this. We need the goddamn Fremen. Exactly. We need them so bad. We need them for their battalions. We need them for their planet. We need them for their expertise in navigating the planet. We need them because they understand the history of this planet. We need them and conversely, or, 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 and, and also kinds because the storehouses, we need the equipment. We, 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 there's a lot riding on our relationship with the Fremen. Oh, and by the way, if you are in fact in this prophecy of them, we need that too. We, Leto is now feeling the pressure of, we are in desperate need of Fremen assistance here, which is a great segue into the next chapter, isn't it? Yeah. Because we are going to get a chance to talk to a very important man who has spent a lot of time among the Fremen. So why don't we dive in? Yes. 
think it is your turn to read uh, this chapter heading. What page are you on, sir? That would be 171 in my book. 134 for mine. Chapter 15 starts as follows. Uh, and I find this very, very interesting. I'm editorializing. But this, this open here, we're going to talk about this probably before we even move into the chapter proper. <clears throat> my father, the Padishah Emperor, took me by the hand one day and I sensed in the ways my mother had taught me that he was disturbed. He led me down the hall of portraits to the ego likeness of the Duke Leto Atreides. I marked the strong resemblance between them, my father and this man in the portrait, both with thin, elegant faces and sharp features dominated by cold eyes. Princess daughter, my father said, I would that you'd been older when it came time for this man to choose a woman. My father was seventy-one at the time and looking no older than the man in the portrait, and I was but fourteen. Yet I remember deducing in that instant that my father secretly wished the Duke had been his son and disliked the political necessities that made them enemies. From In My Father's House by the Princess Irulan. Number one, Princess Irulan has Benny Jezra power, training anyway, right? She says it. She says, yeah. I sensed in the ways my mother had taught me. Ah, interesting. <laughs> and Jezra, it's everywhere. But we go on to get all all we've been talking about for 15 14 chapters Matt is this idea of the 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 unfortunate situation that Leto finds himself in with this sort of faceless padishah emperor the fourth who has it out for him and boy do we get a perspective flip here don't we yeah and i to be honest i really like how it is it's the one and the same thing that makes them enemies and commands respect that the reason I think the you know, the emperor has it out for Atreides, we've talked about this a little bit before, is that he realizes how much uh, charisma and respect that Duke Leto commands, that people re- admire him, people look up to him, people maybe even seek his counsel before the council of the emperor. Um, and all of those things, he likes him for that too. He mm-hmm. thinks he is a good leader. He thinks he is probably a noble man. But because of his ease with with commanding that kind of loyalty – that also makes him a threat to the emperor. Indeed. Um, so I like that it is, it's one and the same. This chapter kicks off with Kynes. And, uh, and, and although I don't want to just read the very next paragraph, I think I'm forced to because I, it's, it's important to set the entire tone of chapter 15. His first encounter with the people he had been ordered to betray left Dr. Kynes shaken. He prided himself on being a scientist whom legends were merely interested in it were merely interesting clues pointing toward cultural roots, yet the boy fitted the ancient prophecy so precisely he had the questing eyes and the air of reserved candor. Matthew, Dr. Kynes has been ordered to betray the Atreides? What? I, it makes sense to me since mm. he is still directly answering to the emperor. <laughs> so he knows, he knows at least some of the plot against the Atreides. Absolutely. But this is our first look at Kynes. Kynes, we get a lot of perspective on Kynes, a lot of his POV and what he thinks. He scoffs at the shield patterns. Arrakis has a surprise for them there, he thinks. And uh, he's, he's, being, he's coming to meet the Duke. We're having a bit of an, another meeting, as it were, <laughs> uh, where these guys are going to hang out and chit-chat. And uh, then they're going to go for a little ride in the Ornithopter to check out some desert operations. But, I also just love how much, <laughs> if I could just say, like, <laughs> how much Kynes 
just scoffs at how much they have their swords, their stunners, their shields, their their pellet stunners, their laser guns, all heavily armed. He's just like, pussies. Like, <laughs> you don't need none of that shit. That ain't going to do nothing. It's excellent. I love this this excellent moment from Kynes. He observes Leto. He observes Paul. And what does he think of Leto? He goes, hmm, interesting. He looks him over. He's looking at what he's wearing. Like you said, he goes, interesting. This seems to lack a free swinging, striding rhythm, meaning his still suit, although on, eh, doesn't quite know what he's doing. That's obvious. And then he's quite taken aback when he realizes the young boy carried a sense of command and he wore the same style cloak as the father, yet with casual ease that made one think the boy had always worn such clothing. And he thinks, Matt, the Mahdi will be aware of things others cannot see. Kynes is like, who interesting. And it's funny because even Kynes grapples with this thought where he says, no, they're just people. Like he's back yeah. and forth on Paul. I love that Kynes right away. Again, to remind the listener, the kind Kynes is this imperial planetologist who spent a bunch of time with the Fremen. We don't know anything about what he looks like or his appearance yet because we open the chapter on his POV and he's regarding Paul and he's regarding Leto and he's seeing, boy, this kid sure has a knack for this dress, for this still suit thing. He has a, a command about him. He, it's just, could you imagine looking at a 16-year-old kid and thinking this? Right, right. Like, think about that for a minute. Looking at a 16-year-old and thinking poised assurance and thinking sense of command and thinking he, he was aware of things not visible to him. I mean, that's that's absurd, first of all. You wouldn't think that about a high school kid, right? No offense no. to high school kids, but you know, <laughs> you, you got a long way to go. So it's it's interesting that already Kynes, a man whose perspective we're going to come to really appreciate soon, thinks this about Paul. And he uh, finds Leto a bit clumsy. <laughs> exactly. He's already nothing for the father. The father is almost seemingly perfunctory to him right now. Water fat. We're going to talk about that. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, he's a bunch of, bunch of soft, you know, soft-handed, had it easy, pampered royals. Mm-hmm. That's, what he, that's a little big part of what he thinks of them right now. This, uh, I found this utterly fascinating. Kynes, uh, Kynes was, so before this meeting occurred, what we learn is that Kynes had been briefed on how to properly interact with in royalty, okay? And, and Kynes <laughs> yes. really rejects this notion because he thinks to himself, they'll soon learn enough who's master on Arrakis. Order me questioned half the night by that mentat. <laughs> Expect <laughs> me to guide them on inspection of spice mining. And he just says... Oh, oh, and you know about the Imperial bases? Oh, here's a thought that should be very unsettling for the reader. I will have Stilgar send Idaho's head to this duke. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit, son. Let's go. <laughs> He's like, fuck that. You never should have even mentioned it. This is out of your purview. Idaho's a dead man. <laughs> Excellent. And Matt, do me a favor if, if you would be so kind. I don't know if you see it, but it says... Leto had studied him. I like. I, I want to hear you t- describe describe Kynes for me. Describe what he looks like. Ooh, wait, where is that? Pat? It's right under. I have Silgar Senado's head. You know, a couple lines down. It, it's uh, Leto had studied him. Yes, tall, thin, dressed for the desert in loose robe, still suit, and low boots. The man's hood was thrown back, its veil hanging to one side, revealing long, sandy hair, a sparse beard. The eyes that were fathomless blue within blue under thick brows. Remains of dark stains smudged his eye sockets. I love this. 
That's a, so first of all, that's a surprise. This guy's an imperial planetologist. And he mm-hmm. looks like he's gone native. He <laughs> <think> lo- even, <laughs> I, they literally say that, I think. Yeah. I yeah, think, so. I think yeah. it's the, the Duke who thinks that. Like, wow, he's really gone native. He doesn't look like a man of the Imperium anymore. And I mean, and he also looks like a man of total practicality, probably mm-hmm. very similar to the Fremen. Like, the stains smudged under his eye, stock, uh, eye sockets to reflect the sun back. Yep, I mean, yep. all of that. Absolutely. So I, cool. One of my favorite parts of this, and, and this is what I... I've really come to love Paul the more we get into this book, but I love where they're sort of, uh, you know, ballying back and forth, blah, blah, blah. This is my son, blah, blah, blah. And Paul just says, are you Fremen? <laughs> and kind Straight smiles, right? I like how he's like, I'm accepted in both CH and village, young master, but I <laughs> am his majesty's service. I like how he makes that very clear. But, um, but Paul is immediately impressed with Kynes. He loves his air of strength. And, uh, and, and yeah, he, this is, this is really interesting that Paul is just so blunt. Are you from it? It almost, I'm surprised the rest of the people didn't react to this question, but, but this, this continues, doesn't it? Right. It, it, it there's the, this continues with Paul sensing power in kinds an impact of personality as though he were blood Royal born to command. Yeah. He feels it from Paul. Mm. So. I love it. They're talking a lot about how they're going to go and do this thing. And, you know, Duke is very gracious. He says, thank you for the still suits. Uh, I hope they fit, blah, blah, blah. Pleasantries here, right? And um, we can carry water. We don't intend to be out that long. And Kynes just says, you know, talk about likelihoods in Arrakis, only possibility. <laughs> don't ever assume that you that, that that your items will save you. Like you, yes. you've got to be prepared for the worst Ex- possibility. Yeah. Likelihood, forget it. What's the possibility? Prepare for such possibility. Don't don't assume likelihood will go in your favor on Arrakis is basically what he's saying. Like, you know, that's lovely and stuff that you're thinking positively, but I'm here to be real with you. And Halleck takes exception to the casual nature. We, we see this throughout the chapter, the casual nature in which Kynes will sometimes refer to the Duke, right? Yes. Yeah. And he is like, hey, <laughs> that is not how you speak. To the Duke, he's to be addressed as my lord or sire. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Leto, Leto sort of, and, and this is where I think Leto is brilliant, okay? We, we just talked about him being quite morose some time ago, but but that's only, see, what's funny about Leto is Leto just can't be left alone. <laughs> Leto can't be left alone with his thoughts. He gets real dark. Leto has to be doing leadership shit. Isn't that interesting to think about? Because boy, does he know how to navigate this stuff. He's brilliant here. Leto is brilliant here. I just want to make that clear. It, it, because because we're going to talk a lot about Kynes' perception of Leto right now, right? Water, fat, flesh. <laughs> Weak. Right. Soft. Just full of hydration. Lucky you. And, <laughs> and, and when Gurney snaps, which is what Gurney, Gurney is supposed to do. Gurney's doing his job. Leto gives him a little hand gesture. We have to make allowances. You know, we're indebted to you kinds. These suits are great. This is wonderful. And, uh, and Paul- He's diplomatic. Just, he is. And Paul drops the, the gift is the blessing of the giver. And God damn, the Benny Gesserit must be hooting and hollering and with pride because <laughs> the missionary partitiva did its job because kinds falls for this. Yes, and even what what I like that one of his Fremen uh, escorts there just stands up and cries out, "Lisa Al Gabe." I know he's like, <laughs> like "This yeah. is the fucking guy." 
That's the guy. That's and, the prophecy guy. That's the dude. Kynes. And Kynes is like, damn it, shut up. You're giving away our position. Yeah, exactly. we're, we're in a very dominance uh, uh, discussion here, right? And he can't help but think to himself, the yeah. words of the legend, they will greet you with holy words and yes. your gifts will be a blessing. Yep. Um, uh, and in, 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 in this moment, Leto goes, oh, this dude's Fremen. Oh, 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 he's a Fremen now. The planetologist thing you can say, but this dude's now a Fremen. He is, quote, gone native. That's yeah. it, period. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's got to be great news for Leto at this point because the emperor and him are at odds. And if he thinks, now this is a point of leverage I can use because what did we learn in the last chapter? What's everything riding on, right? The relationship to the Fremen. Yes. And, and, and if Kynes has gone native, this is kind of good news for us. So now we know... That on page 138 of my book, I don't know what it is of yours. That 176. That on page 176, now Leto is going, ah, we need to now impress this man. And, yes. and we need to be honest about it. We can't fool this guy with our horse shit. We need to impress upon this man that we are worthy and that in in in, in a big one, we are not the Harkonnen. Yes. I think that's that's honestly probably at the forefront. That you know, to anybody, to kinds, you know, it's like, okay, it passed from one hand to another hand. Like, that's all Indeed. I see these people. Uh, these are the next people, whatever. I don't know about the Atreides. I don't give a shit about the Atreides. Nope. You know, I'm just now getting any impression of them at all. So anybody could just be as bad as the Harkonnens. Yes. So, yeah, he's, he's probably even starting a little bit with the assumption that they'll be more like the Harkonnens. Yes. I like that you say that because if he has, quote, gone native, end quote, we know that he is more removed from interhouse horseshit than he has ever been. Yes. He doesn't true. care. You know, <laughs> I, I don't, the Native American cares not between the, 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 the feud between a, the Northerner and the Southerner, right? <laughs> I don't care. This is not, this is, so I like that because at the beginning of the chapter, like, oh, he's just here to, you know, make sure the paperwork's done properly, like a facilitator. And then you go, well, wait a second. He has his own perception, this Kynes. I fucking love Kynes. If it's not coming through in this episode, it should be. <laughs> Kynes is fascinating. <laughs> He's yeah. rad, isn't he? So let's get, let's get back to what we talked about a little earlier, Matt, with the importance of the, of the shield. Because one thing Kynes notices, as we already know, is your suit needs to be adjusted, dude. Like this, this is cute that you tried really hard, but you're not wearing this properly. You're going to dehydrate if, if, right. if we get stuck out here. So let's... Let me fix your suit for you is what's, what he's saying here. And I love this because he's, he's basically great. saying, let me get in close and put my fucking hands on you. Which um, apparently is a big deal in this world because shields are everything to these Imperium types. Right. I mean, and this is a duke. And I mean, I, but I love what Kine says when he said after, you know, saying, let me check the security of your suit. He says, I have concern for my own flesh as well as yours, right. my lord. I'm well aware of those of whose throat would be slit should harm befall you two while you're in my care. Of course, <laughs> so of it's course. basically saying, I'm also doing this for me, trust me. And as badass as Kynes is, Gurney Halleck's going to chop his goddamn head off if something happens to the Duke. And it's, and it's, he's gonna, or he's going to shoot him to death right there. Like, Gurney Halleck doesn't play games, right? If, if something happens to the Duke... He's going to either die right there on the spot if this guy gets cute, or if or if it's just negligence that gets the Duke killed, then there might be some problems with Idaho and Stilgar and others, right? Right, right. It's fascinating. I, and I do love that moment of, of uh, Gurney being like on the balls of his feet, poised and ready to move. <laughs> That's awesome. I will. But uh, Kynes fixes his suit. And I mean, I, I even love the moment where 
the the Duke even has to admit to himself like, oh, it it does feel better now. Like it it, it mm. feels adjusted. It it doesn't feel tight or chafing. Yes. He says, with a Fremen suit in good working order, you won't lose more than a thimbleful of moisture a day, even if you're caught in the great erg. Great erg. Erg. It also processes your pee-pees and poo-poos, which is real nice. Yeah, that's the, that's what the thigh the thigh section does. <laughs> Very um, delicious. So I like um, I like when the Duke. So what we said earlier was when Duke Leto was speaking to Stilgar before he meets Kynes, right? Last chapter is. We will honor each other in dignity, but it must be mutual. That's that's if I'm if I'm paraphrasing here. He's saying we need this needs to be mutual between us. If it's not, we have a problem. I will respect your Chris Knife traditions. You will respect mine. Now we also know about the desperation that Leto has. So he's 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 playing nice with Kinds, right? He's playing very nice with Kinds, but he does think to himself, a good man. He'll have to learn how to address us properly, though. And that's fair. That's fair, right? Because right. the Duke can't be undermined in front of his men, period, or he loses respect. And it's one thing for on this first meeting, this very first impression. Absolutely. To make some allowances. You know, our ways are yep. new here, he says. That's one thing. But yeah, moving forward, <clears> okay, <throat> if we're going to have this alignment together, then we need to be on more equal footing. Fair. And then he moves to the boy kinds because... Remember, they want to see a deep spice mining operation. They're going to go in an ornithopter. They're going to go for a fly. They're going to fly out to the desert. They're going to observe how this happens. They're about to go witness, and we, the reader, are about to get into a situation where we see, oh, so this is what the entire economic system is based on, is this operation. So this is a big deal, this kind of inspection, if you think about it, right? Yeah. And they're getting ready, and they want the suits to be on. So he moves, so Kynes moves over to Paul, and he says... He steps back with a puzzled expression. You've worn a steel suit before. This is the first time. Then someone adjusted it for you? No. <laughs> and Kynes is like, hmm. And he thinks of the legend, Matthew. He shall know your ways as though born to them. That's uh, so Ooh, good. Kynes might be getting. Now, what is so fascinating about this entire thing, it brings us back to something you and I both love, and it's the Missionaria Protectiva. Uh, right? Yes. This, <laughs> I love it. So because Kynes has gone native, he is now more susceptible to the overtures that the prophecies state, which are created by the goddamn Penny Gesserit, however many <laughs> years ago. So we're seeing the benefits of the Benny Gesserit pay off in this interaction yeah. between Kynes and Leto and the Atreides. This is and you've got fascinating. A- Yes, and you've got to also imagine that it only works out this way as well that the missionary protectiva, you know, works here because uh, Kynes has gone so native that he is so Absolutely. embedded with the Fremen that he's now so familiar with their their beliefs in these prophecies. Mm, yep. <laughs> so um, they adjust some more. Uh, Kynes fastens his harness. Uh, I like when he gets on the thought. This is something I find utterly fascinating. But when he gets on the, I got to stop saying fascinating. By the way, it's annoying. But when he gets on the ornithopter, he has this revelation of, boy, this is so soft and comfy, this chair. We, we don't think about that. It gives us a real perspective onto the hard life of the Fremen. Yeah, yeah. Just, just the seat, just the padding on his ass. He's thinking, huh, this is nice. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it, and, you know, he has it almost like, a, like, a, like an afterthought. You, were, you, you work for the emperor. Like, you're telling me you didn't live in the lap of luxury at some point? So that single consideration by Kynes tells us that he's been away from comfort for a long time. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. That he has truly been out here and and embedded with the uh, the Fremen for many years. <laughs> mm, indeed. So um, they take off. They 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 go for a fly, and uh, they talk a little bit more about uh, uh, this this concept that the Fremen. You know, you, with these gloves on, you you lose a lot of moisture through your palms. So what the Fremen do is they rub the chrysote bush, this juice on their hands, so they can still do fine dexterous movements, but because it inhibits uh, perspiration. And they're just sort of talking about life in the deserts. And that's when Kine sits back and he thinks, Matthew, the water fat flesh he had felt beneath the still suits. They wore shield belts over their robes, slow pellet stunners at the waist, coin-sized emergency transmitters on cords. Both the Duke and his son carried knives and wrist sheaths, and the sheaths appeared well-worn. The people struck kinds as a strange combination of softness and armed strength. There was poise to them, unlike the Harkonnens. <laughs> so Kynes sloppy, likes, nasty, yeah. stinky Harkonnens. So Kynes is like, eh, what an interesting duality we're seeing here between these people. We, we almost get a sense like respect is starting to brew for kinds. Oh, for sure. And again, and it, it grows even more so, especially by the end of this chapter. But I think he's, I think a lot of this is not even necessarily just a contrast with the Harkonnens, but more a perception of any house that would come here to, to run the operations on Arrakis, that they are removed from the operations themselves. And they're just these royal administrators who are, you know, they they toss out their managers to run everything and they want to stay away held up in their castle. And he sees among them that no, they're willing to go out. The Duke himself is in a still suit and in an ornithopter flying the ornithopter himself yeah. out to an actual site to view it himself. Like he's involved. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's, that's huge. That's, he's not just getting, you know, flown around. He's a man of action kind, uh, uh, Leto and kinds of starting to see it. Right. I yeah, like this idea, though, where he, you know, we're learning about, you know, he's gone native, sure, but what were his duties? He's talking about being a planetologist, et cetera. And Kynes just said, uh, and later just says, did you investigate the spice? Kynes is like, huh, what a question. The Harkonnens <laughs> discourage investigation of the spice, didn't they? Leto knows. And, yeah. uh, and uh, that's when he says the Imperial Court is indeed a long way off. Kynes muttered, and then he thinks... What does this water-soft invader expect? Does he think me fool enough to enlist with him? And it's <laughs> funny the that emperor. it's funny that he thinks that, and it's and I and part of me thinks he's almost convincing himself that that's what he thinks, right? Because he's starting to kind of like this kind uh, this Leto fellow. <laughs> true, true. That's a good point. Uh, and I like how I like how Leto laughs it off. He just kind of laughs. <laughs> I detect a sour note in your voice. Right, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I do love that uh, the, that Leto keeps trying to kind of tiptoe around the issue of like, yeah, you work for the emperor, but he's pretty far away, though. Yeah, isn't he? right. Like, right, you're right. out here. Like we can talk man to man outside of your you know royal responsibilities. <clears throat> but also, I, I like that in this chapter, the base uh, is called to yeah, right, right. But Paul is actually the one thinking that his dad is pushing a little too yes. hard. That he is pressing kinds on things that he shouldn't be pressing him on yet. Indeed. And he does. He says, will you open those bases up to us? They're his majesty's property. They're not being used. <laughs> right? And, and that's when Kynes considered a hard stare at the Duke. He says, Arrakis could be an Eden if its rulers would look up from grubbing for spice. And that's when the Duke knows I've made a, I've made a victory here because he says, aha, 
He didn't answer my question. And he said, how is it a plan to become Eden without money? What is money, Kynes asked, if we don't buy the services you need? And that's when the Duke says, ah, now. We'll discuss this another time. Right now, I believe we're coming up on the end of the shield wall. So that's the that's Leto prodding and poking Kynes, seeing what kind of man he is, what kind of loyalties he has. He's very good at this. This is, this is Leto's strong suit, and he thinks he's getting to this Kynes fellow who probably is not thrilled with the with the way things have been going with the Harkonnen and suggesting he'll be different, suggesting we could maybe do something for this planet and really getting at kinds as native sort of sensibilities at this point. Right. And, I, and him pointing out the fact that, you know, what is money if it won't buy you the services you need? That to me is, I interpreted that as him essentially saying, money is nothing to me. We care about survival on Arrakis. I mm-hmm. mean, that's the overall theme of the Fremen and, and the, the way they view the world is this very low to the ground practical way of surviving so what do they care about money what are they going to buy with that what are they going to do with that they have their own ways they they don't really need the imperial currency indeed and the uh, and the journey continues you know gurney does some some singing uh, they uh, paul has this great moment where he registers kinds to where now he says tone of voice each detail of face and gesture everything will be remembered about kinds Paul enters this Benny Gesserit training and he's just like, boom, I know everything about him. I see the bulge in his sheath. I know he's got a knife there. I know he's hiding this. And that's something I find interesting as this chapter goes on, which is some of the lack of, lack of honesty from Kynes that Paul really starts to pick up on. You know, they, they talk about things like worms. Ah, the worms, I must see one sometime. And Kynes says, you may see one today, Right. They defend right. spice sands. Each worm has a territory. So we learn a little bit more about the about the uh, the worms. We talk. They talk about the specimens examined that they and maybe complicate chemical interchanges within them. We find traces of hydrochloric acid in the ducts. More complicated acid forms everywhere. And he's like, I'll, I'll give you my monograph on the subject. Activate right. a shield within the worm zone, and you seal your fate. That comes <laughs> up again. No man wearing a shield has ever survived and attacked. Yeah. Yeah, the shields are just a beacon for them to come and kill you. <laughs> mm. Paul asks a, a great question. Why haven't there been an effort made to wipe them out? Which is where Paul starts to detect something amiss here, doesn't he? Why not yes. wipe out the sandworms? To which kind says, too expensive, too much area to cover. And Paul goes, ah, I don't know about that. This is a half truth. This is a lie. This is a lie. Right. He says, and he thinks, if there's a relationship between spice and worms... Killing the worms would destroy the spice. Mm, that there indeed. is, yeah. He, he all he all that uh, kinds gives to that, like you said, is just yes. There's some sort of chemical interchange that the worms have with the spice, but that's not really describing the relationship that the worms actually have to it. Yep, we learn about the static electricity uh, transmitters, which will be rendered inoperable because of sandstorms. And uh, you know, the Duke just says, "Well, what kind of advice would you give us then if 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 our things aren't going to work here?" And he just says, "Dude, never travel alone." Also, I think so telling though is when he says, "What would you advise?" The Duke asks, and uh, you know, Kynes' immediate response is, "You ask my advice." And he <laughs> goes, "As a planetologist, yes, you'd follow my advice." And he says, "If I found it sensible, indeed." And, then, and to, to me, that actually is one of the best moments of it, it betrays how the Harkonnens dealt with kind yes sir the fact that he would never take their advice that the harkonnens would never take advice that they wouldn't care uh to even do it so that the fact that this duke pauses to go 
well, you're the expert. What is your advice? I love it. And that gets him a lot of advice, that trust. I'd remember to protect the integrity of my still suit. If I were outside the worm zone or in a rock, I'd stay with the ship. If I were down in the open sand, I'd get away from the ship. About a thousand meters would be far enough. Then I'd hide beneath my robe. A worm would get the ship, but it might miss me. When the worm has gone, one may try to walk out. You must walk softly. Avoid drum sands, tidal dust basins. Head for the nearest rock zone. There are many such zones. You might make it. Right? He gives him a lot of information. Yeah, absolutely. How to survive in the desert. <laughs> and eventually this, this trip comes upon what we've been waiting for, which is one of your factory crawlers. It's on the surface, and that means it's on spice. The cloud is vented. Sand being expelled after the spice has been centrifugally removed. There's no other cloud quite like it. So they are seeing spice mining in progress. Yes, indeed. And I mean, to kind of lay out the scene here, <clears throat> you know, so the way this operation typically goes, we talked about it some already, but the harvesters, the big harvest factory crawlers, they're the only thing down on the surface. And there are several like aircraft spotters that are circling and, and you know, moving around overhead, relaying, <clears throat> relaying to them by radio about any signs they may see of a worm. Right. And what's supposed to happen is if they see a worm sign, they give an estimate for how much, you know, how much time they have left until it reaches them. And then they call in one of the carryalls to swoop down and actually pick up the entire factory operation and the spotters and the factory and the carryall all fly back to, to home base. Yes. <clears throat> in a perfect world, right? In a perfect world. At one point, the craft became a full thopter as the Duke banked it, holding the wings to a gentle beat pointing with his left hand off to the east beyond the factory crawler. Is that worm sign? Kynes leaned across the Duke to peer into the distance. Paul and Halleck were crowded together, looking in the same direction, and Paul noted that their escort, caught by the sudden maneuver, had surged ahead, but now was curving back. The factory crawler lay ahead of them, still some three kilometers away. Where the Duke pointed, crescent dune tracks spread, shadow ripples toward the horizon, and running through them, as a level line stretched into the distance came an elongated mount in motion, a cresting of sand. It reminded Paul of the way a big fish disturbed the water when swimming just under the surface. Worm, Kynes said. Big one. <laughs> oh, shit. So this is when we start a rather chaotic uh, action sequence where they learn they got about 25 minutes and they start radioing and they, uh, we learn that there's a bonus out there for who spots the worm. And what does the good Duke Leto do? Because he spotted it. He spotted it. I love that. Where he calls back in and says, go ahead and split that up among your crew. Take my bonus. Indeed. Excellent. But there's a bit of an issue here, isn't there? Where's the carryall? Yes. Now, I'm trying to remember. Now, the carryall, are they saying it didn't come because it was broken down? That they didn't have one on call? Or they couldn't radio it? They both, they radio you and, and they never saw it, right? That's right, yeah. They, they never see it, I don't think. Yeah, <clears throat> because it comes up here. Shouldn't they have two carryalls standing by for every crawler, the Duke asked? Obviously two, one for backup just in case. There should be 26 men on that machine down there, not to mention cost of equipment. And then um, they say, uh, any of you see the wing? He isn't answering. A garbled noise crackled from the speaker, drowning in an abrupt override signal, then silence in the first voice. Report by the numbers, over. 
This is a spot of control. Last I saw, the wing was pretty high and circling off northwest. I don't see him now. Over. So they don't know what this goddamn carryall is. No carryall. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. So why don't we have two carryalls to each crawler, barked the Duke. You don't have enough equipment. So the Duke is like, I know that we're supposed to have two, but you're saying we only have one, and now that one is missing? Yeah. <laughs> and that's when kind of like, I, I don't know. It could have been forced down somewhere out of sight. And that's when the quick thinking of the Duke really takes over. And he really shows Kynes something special here, doesn't he? This is it. Yeah, this is where he really <laughs> proves himself to Kynes, where he starts organizing immediately for his two flanking airships that are you know running as guards for him and for the spotters to all go down and split up the crew among them and, and get the crew out of there. But although mm-hmm. they realize that there's still going to be three men left that are not going to be able to fit onto their ships... You think he even says, draw straws or do whatever you need to do. But they, <laughs> he orders them, he commands them to stop production. And even the, the workers don't want to stop production. I think it's evidently relatively normal for them. They're used to worms arising and coming after them, but they work up until the last minute. Probably so right up until the carryall's on them. And they, they may yeah. still suspect the carryall's coming, but that doesn't appear to be the case. Yeah, exactly. Damn the spice. I doubt Kynes has ever heard those words uttered before. Yes, exactly. Right. And again, it goes back to, to Kynes' own admission of money means nothing to them. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it doesn't matter. And that's yeah. essentially the Duke saying, I don't care about the profits. And it's in, in, in not just the profits, but like, we have to remember the importance of spice. We've talked about it the whole book. And now he's saying, no, I want my men off this goddamn, I want them out of there. The, the, the worm is going to, the whole operation's going under. It's going to be destroyed by a sandworm. We're getting our guys out of there. Damn the spice. They can't, they can't believe it. <laughs> exactly. He proves himself the true compassionate leader. Yep. And uh, they managed to, to get them in. Um, Agraf began flapping off the sand around them. So they touch down. The spike workers slogged up to the side of the thopter. They start climbing in. Halleck's dragging them in. In you go, boys. On the double. And that's when uh, Paul crowded into a quarter, into a corner by sweating men, smelled the perspiration of fear, saw that, quote, Two of the men had poor neck adjustments on their still suits. He filed the information in his memory for future action. His father would have to order tighter still, still suit discipline. Men get sloppy if you don't watch things. Good shit out of Paul. <laughs> yeah, that, that is more information they need to get out to the men to make their operation tighter. Yep. The Duke, the Duke, no, no. Now imagine this chaos, only so many minutes, sandworms coming. Imagine just seeing this giant tidal wave of sand coming with this giant beast underneath it. They're loading all the stuff onto the thoppers. They're trying to get out of there. And the Duke is cool enough to say, we still have almost three minutes. And Kynes is like, one cool customer, this Duke. <laughs> A cool one. A cool one. <laughs> um, the worm now ends up beneath the crawler. You are about to witness... A thing if you have seen, Kind says. And maybe we should uh, maybe we should read this. We don't read a lot of description, but maybe this one makes sense. Ooh, <clears throat> yeah, here. Uh, I'll dive in on this. <clears throat> Flecks of dust shadowed the sand around the crawler now. The big machine began to tip down to the right. A gigantic sand whirlpool began forming there to the right of the crawler. It moved faster and faster. Sand and dust filled the air now for hundreds of meters around. <clears throat> then they saw it. A wide hole emerged from the sand. Sunlight flashed from glistening white spokes within it. The hole's diameter was at least twice the length of the crawler, Paul estimated. He watched as the machine slid into that opening in a billow of dust and sand. The hole pulled back. 
So we already know the size of these crawlers. We know how how small a person and an ornithopter is to them. And the diameter of the worm's mouth is <laughs> twice the size of that. <laughs> well, then, Fucking that's terrifying. I like how Kynes does a little prayer here. Bless the coming goings of him. May his passage cleanse the world. May he keep the world for his people, right? This, now, this I, sort of reverence is interesting because doesn't it sort of betray the, oh, yeah, we can't wipe them out. It's too costly. Right, exactly. I'm like, it's not about cost. It is you. He says him in reference to the worm. Capital <laughs> like, H. Exactly. Bless the maker and his water coming and going of him. No, they, they hold these worms in a place of reverence. So that gets back to a little bit of the deception Paul sensed earlier when discussion of eradication came up. And now we have another piece of deception that I find really fascinating because there are two, quote, Johnnies who just came for a ride and they're running. And oh, yeah. My lord, my lord said, Kynes, these men's no, no, it's of little use to do anything about them trapped, right? And Duke's like, no, no, we're going to send a ship for these guys too. And Kynes is like, okay, as you wish. But likely when the ship gets there, there'll be no one to rescue. And oh, it's, oh. it's at this point, Paul's like, he's thinking about what the Dune Man and Kynes had been saying and he sensed half-truths again. And that's when Paul realizes, wait a goddamn second, Fremen, exclamation point. Who else would be so sure on the sand? Who else might be left out of your worries as a matter of course because they are in no danger? They know how to live here. They know how to outwit the worm, right? Yes, so, so, so it, it's, it, it's utterly remarkable to Paul that nobody cares about these two guys outside of his dad, because his dad doesn't know, but Kynes knows, and the Dune men know. Those are Fremen. They're going to be fine. They're going to get away from that worm. Don't sweat it. <laughs> but it's interesting that Kynes didn't want to say that. And Paul just blows it up. He goes, what were Fremen doing on that crawler? And Kynes whirls on him and looks at him like, what? Who be this lad? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good question. Oh, Paul Atreides, the ducal heir. Why says he they were Fremen on our rumbler? The man asks. They fit the description, Paul said. Kynes snorted. You can't tell from him just by looking at them. He looked at the dune man. You, who are those men? Friends of our, and he says, friends of one of the others, the dune man said. Just friends from a village who wanted to see the spice sands. Kynes turned away. Fremen. So maybe Kynes didn't even know. I'm just realizing that now. Yeah, because even Kynes says you can't tell Fremen just by looking at them. Right. <clears throat> and he thinks to himself, the Lisan Al Gaib shall see through all subterfuge. Wow. Boy, that Paul, huh? That Paul. <laughs> got some eyeballs on him. <laughs> and I love this quote from uh from Kynes too, because Paul is still disturbed by seeing these two men out there, even though I think he's less worried now, realizing that sure. they're women. Uh, but he says a terrible place for them to die. Without turning, Kynes said, When God hath ordained a creature to die in a particular place, he causeth that creature's wants to direct him to that place. And dude, that to me feels like an, a Oof. further expounding on terrible purpose. The idea of you will fall into the fate that yet yeah, you will always fall into. There's no other fate. And, and isn't it interesting that the following sentence is Leto taking a hard look at Kynes and imagine Leto thinking about his own situation. He's been directed to Arrakis. Yeah, yes, exactly. Right. He's been directed there. He this is his place now. He has become a, you know, essentially a native among them. And, and, and but but not just that, but Leto thinking about his own 
place in the world oh, now. You mean Lado? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, like, I thought you were talking about Kynes. I might have said Kynes by accident. I've been doing it all all day. But but <laughs> but but Lado turning and looking at Kynes, maybe considering his own mortality. You know, he causes that creature's wants to direct him to that place. That really fits for Lado's feelings as of late. Right, that he had no choice in this matter. That he mm. is just placed among Arrakis, and he can't refuse. And I think we should round. We should end this baby by you reading to us how Kynes now thinks of this duke. Ah, yes, so good. Oh, you know what? Let me. I want to read even a little bit ahead of that. Kynes returning to the stair found himself troubled by a fact he had observed there. This duke was concerned more over the men than he was over the spice. Mm. He risked his own life and that of his son to save the men. He passed off the loss of a spice crawler with a gesture. The threat to men's lives had him in a rage. A leader such as that would command fanatic loyalty. He would be a difficult to defeat. Against his own will and all previous judgments, Kynes admitted to himself, I like this duke. <laughs> yes, sir, baby. So good. That is awesome. That's the bulk of what this whole experience has been for, for Leto. Getting here and not even with deception. Leto, we, we've talked a lot about deception being a weapon in this book, but you don't use a weapon on a man like Kynes. You have to show him something inside of your heart to get romantic, right? He needs to see something in you that makes him believe. He's, a, he's Fremen now. We know this. The, the Imperium's a long way away. And you need to convince this guy that you are worth it. And this is huge. That, that conclusion that Kynes is having is, is, is very important to the House Atreides at this stage of the game. And it was done through honest care about the men in their lives over the spice, the profit, and the machinery. And that goes a long way in the desert. It goes a long way with Kynes. And I also think it's really important, too, to remember that, <clears throat> you know, they have, you know, the Atreides have their man on the ground, Duncan Idaho, living with the, the, the Fremen and, you know, making inroads with them. But at the same time, the Fremen are familiar with Duncan Idaho, yes. not Leto Atreides. Yes. This, this is your inroad to make with the Fremen, uh, with the Duke himself. Like, they now, you know, the Fremen essentially, through Kynes, have an impression of the Duke for themselves, um, and I think that's really important because what we really learn in this chapter about Kynes is that he is, he's as Fremen as I think any of them. Um, sure. And they, they respect and defer to his judgment on these things. And now he likes this Duke. That's going to be a pretty damn good uh, advantage to have once the, the, the trap of the Harkonnens is finally sprung. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, and, it, and it brings into focus so many interesting thoughts that tipped us off that in hindsight make more sense now which was Kynes rage at the idea of Idaho in the, in the storage facility and Stilgar's going to get Idaho's head for me. Who are you to tell Stilgar anything? Oh, a highly respected Fremen is what he is, not just a planetologist. The idea that a planetologist could command Stilgar to kill an Imperium man is crazy, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I like this idea that we see, aha, this, this Kynes is not just among the Fremen, but a highly respected member of said Fremen. Yeah, exactly. And his opinion means a lot, especially since he also doubles his reach as somebody who has legal authority over this entire shift. Right, right. Wide-ranging authority. What the word a, will get out. Yes, the word will indeed get out. What a great, great chapter. I love that chapter. It's really good. And, um, and that concludes 
our read, buddy. That concludes our uh, our episode. Yes, and um, yeah, that was excellent. Let's talk about um, some pages and chapters we're going to be doing next time, which is not next week, but the week after. We're going to try to do this every other week. Right. So episode deep. four will begin on chapter 16, and it'll start sure. with the greatness is a transitory experience. It is never consistent. So that's what you're looking for. Um, from on collect- my copy, go ahead. I'll say on my copy, that's page 205. And I think we are going to run all the way through page 262. Nice. Uh, for my copy, it's page 160 to 204. So you're going to be ending at, remember the, oh, maybe I don't want to spoil it. You're going to be remembering at, there should be, so there should be a science of discontent. Don't read that chapter yet. Okay. That's going to be for episode five. So the heading that says, there should be a science of discontent. That's going to be for episode five. So stop before that one. <laughs> so go. we're going to be doing 16, which is page 160 on my book, through, let's see, 16, 16 17, and 18 chapters next, okay? Yes, indeed. Awesome. I already know the next chapter is going to be delving a lot more back into Jessica's perspective. In- I'm looking forward to. Indeed, yes. Indeed. Maybe more a wanted dis- woman for no damn reason. Maybe some discussions with uh, the shadow mapes. I don't know, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but thank you guys for your patience. This is a lot of fun to do, and uh, I'm pumped. I'm pumped we got this, and you guys are going to chance to listen to it uh, before everybody else is going to get a chance to listen to it, which is really neato. Mm-hmm, All right, we're going to get out of here. Matthew, thank you so much for helping me make this happen, and uh, we will see you guys next time. You've been listening to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. For information on upcoming chapters and to continue the conversation, visit us on Discord at libertystreetgeek.net slash discord.